so yeah, I've been uh, ever since we started talking. Like I've always been, your story's always been, you know, fascinating to me. And you know, I was I was happy to see that you got out last year because you know they gave you they gave you an insane sentence. And I always thought it was pretty clear with you that it was like, okay, Obama's coming in. Someone has to like be the scapegoat here. Someone has to, we have to look like we're taking this seriously and we have to give this guy a sentence that we would never give to anyone else. And I always, I actually, you know, around the time 2009, that's around when I like checked out of following national politics a lot because I thought it was ridiculous. Not necessarily like what you, what was going on with you personally, but the idea of all these people, Obama, Valerie Jarrett, everyone saying, how could you sell a Senate seat? They're all sold. What are you talking about? And it really, it really did. You know, I was from Hyde Park. Everyone in Chicago was really excited about Obama, and it really set the tone for the next eight years for me. Well, that's that's interesting, uh, Felix, and thank you for opening with that. Let me say that to start out, I, I, to the day I die, I'll never stop contending that I didn't break a single law across a single line, and the so-called sale of the Senate seat mm-hmm. was all bullshit from the very beginning. Can you swear on this podcast? Is that oh, okay? of course. You can say whatever you want. This is I a, often do. This podcast is fucking golden, to quote me. <laughs> <laughs> but it was all it was all bullshit. I never sold a Senate seat. That was a bol- bunch of baloney. And eventually, the appellate court reversed those charges. Mm-hmm. There, I was in prison for nearly four years. By the time they did it, it was in July of 2015. They could never uphold the standard they used to convict me on that because that would shut government down. Because government is predicated on horse trading, log rolling, yes. political deals. Now, if I were involved in trying to, you know, shake down Obama for an appointment and, you know, I tell Obama or somebody, give me, uh, you know, $25 million in a Swiss bank account for me. Well, that would be the sale of a sentence. That would be a crime. But that was never it. It was political deals. And the conversations, Felix, all began with Obama. He sent an emissary to me to make these, to have these discussions. Now, he didn't do anything wrong either. That's how politics works. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, they came after me and they did what they did. They brought Armageddon. I would never give in. I would never stop fighting against them. I wouldn't take the deals. They were dangling, light sentence. They didn't convict me at a first trial because it was all bullshit. They used it. They moved the line in the second trial to get those convictions. And then they, as you say, they buried me with a 14-year sentence. I never took a penny. This is unprecedented. No governor's been ever given a sentence like that. They put me in a higher security prison, all designed to break my will to resist, and I wouldn't do it. And to this day, I continue to fight as best I can to try to get the truth out because in the final analysis, that's an example of government out of control, without checks and balances, these prosecutors unelected by the people with fancy law degrees, bureaucrats, who abused their power and decided to do a political hit on me. Now, I can see how the new politics is unfolding, and it's very dangerous that they're using these prosecutors as political weapons to go after people that we don't like and you know we may or may not like politically. And it, it's not a Democrat-Republican issue. This is an American issue. It's about our freedom in a democracy. Uh, and... What they did to me, I think, was, you know, sort of an example of this new politics, this politics of personal destruction. And when I was a congressman back in the late 1990s and I voted against impeaching Bill Clinton for the blowjob he got, right? Mm -hmm. He shouldn't have done that. He's married and Hillary should have thrown his ass out. But that's between them. It's not an impeachable offense. And then they try to throw him out of office and put him in prison. This is what's really bad about American politics today. It's very dangerous. And Felix, if you have any children, I keep them out of politics. It's a dangerous business. I don't have any, but like 
no, I would, I would literally have them do anything else. You would have them do. I'd rather that have them be podcasters, as ignominious as that is. I'd rather have them do what I do. <laughs> well, I you, had kids. You probably have more influence yeah. as a podcaster than as an individual member of Congress. I, I hope not. Well, I hope I don't. <laughs> but it's <laughs> a, terrible. It's a new kind of reality that I've returned yeah. home to. I, I mean, this wasn't like it was. It, what it is now wasn't like it was before I left. It's very interesting. Well, that's I. You know, as I said, always been really into your story. And the past month, two months, been doing a lot of background on it. Something that I think is amazing about your story is you're kind of the connective tissue between how things used to be and how things are now. I even think it's clear when you look at the congressional district you represented in Congress. Rostenkowski had it. Rostenkowski represents the old ways of doing things. And that's not a moral judgment. You know, those patronage networks... I mean, there's always going to be patronage in if we're doing this system that we have, we're always going to have it. And yeah, there are things you can criticize about it, but you look at what the democratic machine in cities is now. You look at someone like Eric Garcetti, mayor of Los Angeles. You look at, you know, Rahm Emanuel. You look at Lori Lightfoot now. You look at Bill de Blasio, anyone. Those relationships are now patronage relationships with, you know, national tech companies, their relationships with developers. And it seems like you have the same general problem that people have always identified, but there's less buy-in for an average person. And with you, what I think is sort of amazing about your story, particularly, is I really, I, you know, everything I've read about you, there are all these accounts about how you know, your eyes were always set on kind of a national stage. You, you, you had your eyes on the presidency for a while. And I think you, you could have done it. Out of all the Democratic politicians in my lifetime, you, you kind of had that like old style of like retail politics, that type of charisma. I looked at some of the people who ran for president in my lifetime, you know, John Kerry, Walter Mond, well, not Walter, I wasn't allowed then. But yeah, like, too young. You, you get it. But like, yeah, yeah a lot of dead fish. Mm-hmm. You get Hillary and you you sort of had that ability. You, you genuinely enjoyed talking to people. I always got that sense from you. But you, you were aware of the times. You weren't going to, Rostenkowski, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. They eventually got him on mail fraud, I think it was. And that was... You know, he's one of the probably the last sitting congressmen they'll ever get on something like that. He, of course, he fought it too. They sent him away. Um, but then, you know, you were there, and you you had a lot of those relationships in still in your district in the, in the ward you started out in, in, in with people here. But you were aware of the changing times, and you know, it's clear when you're a governor. And then after you comes Rahm Emanuel, who completely represents the new way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Who he could be from anywhere. Right. You know, when he became mayor, it's it was it was like when they moved baseball managers around. Right. It felt like he had zero relationships here. And it, it was clear when he was mayor. But I, I I also think in a lot of ways you were pretty ahead of your time. Well, that's interesting. Uh, Felix, I, I'd say a couple of things. Rom sort of you look at Rom, you look at J.B. Pritzker, governor now. Mm-hmm. They're sort of like the top down. Yes. You know, their political uh, careers and pre- President Trump, too, on the other side and the other political party, top down. Yes. I came up grassroots up. And, you know, my beginning was literally for a very local race, state representative, 
in these neighborhoods, very close to the studio. And you go out, you do what you said, retail politics, and you meet a lot of people one-on-one. And it's good that way, I think, because you you understand them better and their desires, their hopes, their dreams, their fears, because you, you're with them. And if you're running a campaign that's directed towards actually reaching as many voters as you can at the grassroots level, you spend several weeks, more than two months doing that. Mm-hmm. And so then when you get elected, hopefully you don't forget the things they told you and you try to do those things when you're in a position where you can actually get them done. And we'll talk maybe later about my time as governor because I feel very proud of the accomplishments we did for everyday ordinary people where we, I think, improve their lives and ease some of the burdens they face. But I feel like that that type of politics keeps you close to the people. And you talked about the old machine, the Chicago machine with the precinct captains knocking on doors and stuff and how that's no longer there today. And social media, I guess, is sort of replacing some of that, a lot of it maybe. But there's a lot to be said for that old school knocking on, you know, the Mrs. Mrs. Sullivan's door. She's a senior citizen, and Jimmy McKenna, the precinct captain, knows her for years and years and takes care of things for her, you know, shovels the snow in the wintertime and helps her with, you know, different kinds of issues, connect her to downtown and city hall. It, It brings local government closer to everyday people. And without that, there doesn't seem to be that kind of connection that they have anymore. So there's a loss, I think, because that's no longer how it was now. Was the patronage system abused? Of course it was. And were people hired uh, who were not qualified? I'm sure that was always a common practice with all the different political bosses, whether it's Madigan, you know, my father-in-law, who was one of them, Rostenkowski's dad, who was one, Mayor Daly's dad, who was the ultimate political boss. And then there were, you know, the days where these guys would be city workers and wouldn't even have to show up to work. They would just work their precincts. Madigan had some... Some of these guys were such good precinct captains that when I was governor, I knew who they were. I knew their names. They had a reputation in that political world for being so good. And Madigan would protect them and they wouldn't have to even go to work. Now, that's wrong. That's that's ripping off the taxpayers. So that shouldn't be the case. But I do wish there was more of a – some of that left where just everyday people can be connected to government through a – an emissary from the neighborhood who knows them and understands their concerns. So I think there's been a loss. And then you talk about, you know, the new kind of politics, what it's driven by money. It's all money. I mean, what did Prisker spend? $178 million. I sold a Senate seat. I'd call that buying a governorship, right? Yeah. With his own money that he had frankly inherited. He didn't earn that money. Right. And there's something troubling about that too, with in American politics. You look at the United States Senate, very few are not, you know, millionaires or multimillionaires. So everyday people have a hard time being able to get elected to big offices because you need money. And, you Mm -hmm. know, my troubles were partly because of campaign fundraising, which I was aggressive at. But again, I didn't cross a single line on that either. But I believed it was important for me if I was going to be a governor to fight for the people I promised I'd fight for. Children, we gave health care to all of our kids free public transportation to our seniors and the disabled. I did that without raising taxes on people. Mm-hmm. Mammograms and pap smears for uninsured women, 153,000 of them, mostly women of color who die disproportionately from breast cancer because they don't detect it early enough. So I did things like that. And to do it, you had to take on the establishment because what I wasn't going to do was raise taxes on people to do it and, and make it harder for people. But I felt like there was enough money there. Just set better priorities and move it around. Well, you're going to make enemies when you do that. 
but to be politically strong, you had to have campaign money so you can fight the Madigans and fight the bosses, even in your own party, because their agendas are not necessarily your agendas. For somebody like Madigan, who's so cynical, and there's a lot of people like him, it's all about power and their position in the power game, and so much less about actually doing things for people. So I felt I had to be strong politically by raising money. And the new politics today is, I think, too much of that. And I don't know what all the answers are. I've been advocating, believe it or not, campaign, not only real campaign finance reform, which means limiting the amount of money that can be spent on campaigns. And that's been an idea that's been out there since I began in politics in the early Mm -hmm. 1990s. But it's not going anywhere because the money people don't want it. And frankly, the TV stations and the broadcasting associations that make money off these TV ads, they don't want it either. But it's really cheapening our politics. They ought to limit the time of campaigns. They ought to limit the amount of money that could be spent in a campaign and then put different limits on what people can give, I think. That would be a better way. Don't you think, though, like to some extent, though, even if you were able to do that, you know, you can't be on the airwaves as much. I mean, I'm not even sure how well TV advertisement in uh, politics works. No one really is. It has a variable effect. It depends on the electorate you're talking to. It depends the demographic, what time of day, the specific candidates. But I think mostly TV advertising is a way for consultants to pay each other. But the real money in politics, beyond just, you know, consultants of varying levels of talent paying each other, the same money sloshing around the same people forever, you're going to see things like Gavin Newsom, his, you can, it's perfectly legal for his wife to be paid, you know, $300,000 a year through some NGO that companies who do business in California that Newsom is supposed to regulate for them to pay his wife. I mean, this is like, that's the way that our generals end up sitting on the boards of defense contractors, telecom, anything that we're supposed to regulate, it will, people will find a way to hire those people. I mean, you're, you're aware that that was, I mean, that was even for you, when you wanted out, you kind of thought you wanted to go to the NGO world. Yeah. Yeah. So we, NGO world, meaning the, uh, what is it? Tell me what that means. NGO. A non-government organization. Yeah. Like so another like, 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 like a 506, yeah, 503 yeah. C1 or C4, yeah. one of those. And I'm not like, I think it would probably be good to like, at least make it harder for consultants mm-hmm. to make money for there to be less money in politics media. But I, I think at the end of the day, there are just so many, and there are so many corners you can cut, mm-hmm. and so many ways to pay people one way or the other. Mm-hmm. That I just I do not know how you'd get rid of it. Well, that's the real corruption in the in our democracy today. It's one of them. I would argue government surveillance and censorship is another. Mm-hmm. And what you, but this is another. This this example that you're giving is is very much a real problem in American democracy today. It's the uh, and, and let me say a couple of things and I'm thank you for this opportunity. Check the record, but you'll see that you know I could have easily, when I was governor, arranged for my wife to get one of those positions, one of those jobs, and I didn't, and she didn't. We we didn't want to do it that way. I didn't want anybody to say that I was using my influence to help my family make money. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I had a big falling out with a member of my family, her father, over a landfill he was involved in. I won't yes. go into all of that, mm-hmm. but that be, that. He, what he did to me when he made accusations that were baseless on purpose because I shut down his landfill that was operating in violation of Illinois environmental laws. Mm-hmm. He then made these accusations. That's pretty much what brought the FBI into my life. And you know, he's an old Chicago ward boss. He understands how the system works. And he knew when he did that, he eventually retracted it because he was being threatened with a lawsuit by the person he made the accusation against. 
but he knew that was going to unleash the Furies on me. And so he did that. I'm convinced without doubt that he did it purposely. He's a clever, smart guy. Now he's my father-in-law and there's elements of him that I love to this day. Mm-hmm. He's the grandfather of my kids. And uh, I believe in forgiveness and I've forgiven it. And when I'm with him, I, I never bring it up. But what he was angry about was that he wasn't getting rich while I was governor. Mm-hmm. He wanted his quote unquote big score. And he was maneuvering in all kinds of ways to try to do it when I would directly tell him I wasn't going to do certain things. So I had to eventually do something that no governor's ever done. And that's the irony that I went to prison. But I actually issued an executive order on my own to protect my administration and the people of Illinois from my family getting rich while I was governor. Mm-hmm. And the executive order said that anybody related to me, whether it's my wife, my children were babies, they were little girls at the time, so it was not relevant. My father-in-law, my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, my brother, my sister-in-law with my brother's wife, my nephew, anybody like that who's related to me were prohibited by law from doing any business with the state of Illinois. Now, they could have, to use my father-in-law's phrase, lunched up on me, as just about every political family has done. The Madigans have done it. Frankly, the Daly families have done it. Oh, Mayor Daly. more than anyone else. Dick Durbin's wife is a big lobbyist. Mm-hmm. She's a United States senator. He's a United States senator sending federal money to Illinois, and she's lobbying on all kinds of things. Yeah. Explains why he's become a millionaire as a United States senator. We have Senator Cullerton, who is, think about this in Illinois. He was the, Illinois, the president of this Illinois State Senate. At the same time, he was a practicing attorney. At the same time, he was a lobbyist who could legally lobby state government. So in other words, he could lobby himself on behalf of his client who's paying him a lot of money. How is that legal? Somebody asked me that the other day, and the answer is it's legal because the same people who make the rules make them to benefit themselves. And that happens at the state level in Illinois. Believe me, as you say, it happens even more so at the federal level in Washington. And you touched on some of those examples, like those military guys who leave the military and go and join the political, no, the military-industrial complex, making much bigger money at that level than they do at the state level. And in those cases, some of it's life and death. They're part of the decision-making that leads some of us, some of our leaders to put us in adventures in faraway places where Mm -hmm. Americans die and they shouldn't be there. Rewinding a bit, do you ever feel like you've talked about how you, you I've heard you mention that before that you feel like your father-in-law, Richard Mel, that he put a little bit of a target on your back. Do you feel that way generally that like people around you, sort of what they were doing sort of broad scrutiny and on because according to the feds, according to like Patrick mm-hmm. Fitzgerald, it's, it was people like Christopher Kelly, um, Resco, of course, right. who Resco had dealings with literally everyone in Illinois, like doing the same shit. Uh, um, Joe Carey, Joe. Oh, Carey. Joe Carey was, uh, is a scumbag who I'd never, I hardly knew Joe Carey. Mm-hmm. The, and he, he, this guy's a total coward and a criminal who spent no time in prison. He flipped on everybody else for the stuff he was doing. He was the biggest supporter of my Republican opponent for governor in uh, 2002. He was friends with him. He raised a lot of money for Jim Ryan. He was not my guy, but he was part of that system that when I became governor, he was there. Yeah. And I guess he connected with those guys and like, and and then he he was on a, a trip to Washington with me once, but I was very, he was not at all close to me by any means. Now, Chris and Tony were. Now, Tony Resco, you should know, had a closer relationship with Barack Obama than he did Oh, yeah, he sold him, sold him the house. He bought him the house. He bought him that lot. Think yeah. about this, <laughs> yeah. right? 
They're in your I mean, neighborhood like 10 blocks Park. from where I grew up. Right. <laughs> yeah. So Obama buys the actual, it's the two lots. Obama buys the, the uh, mansion there after mm-hmm. he becomes U.S. Senator. Okay. And at the same time, Michelle Obama works the, in some capacity for the University of Chicago hospital there. Mm-hmm. Great hospital. He's now a U.S. Senator sending federal mons, money to that hospital. And she's making something like $300,000 a year doing that while he's a senator. That goes to the other thing that you were talking about. It's perfectly legal. Right. But even I wasn't doing that. Right. That's one of the ironies. I'm, I'm not claiming I'm a choir boy or I'm an angel. I'm not claiming that. But on something like this, I felt like I should have complete separation. Anyway, Resco buys that. Brock and uh, Michelle Obama buy that house, that mansion. They don't have enough money to buy that adjoining lot. So they asked Tony Resco to do it. He spent something like seven hundred to seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, yeah, buying that lot, and he paid the full price. He didn't negotiate it down. The actual lot next door that the Obamas bought, the improvement was actually negotiated down. They didn't pay the list price, but Tony paid Resco the list price for that adjoining lot. When the media discovered it, and they went easy on Obama, he asked Resco to put up a fence, and it cost something like thirteen thousand dollars, and t- Tony paid that too. Must have been an amazing fence. Yeah, to separate the property so that Barack can have deniability. Now, not illegal, but it sure does have a bad smell to it. When you say, okay, so I would say, as I told Mayor Daly once, as frustrating as it was because of Rusco bringing problems to me and that those were legitimate things that they were pursuing Rusco on. Those Mm -hmm. were his private business dealings and some of the shenanigans that he was doing without me knowing in parts of my administration. Um. What I told the mayor daily at one of our dinners was, he's more, Barack's more tonied up than I am. Um, but it, the stuff that Resco did and was doing, the stuff that Chris Kelly eventually was convicted on, they had nothing to do with me. I was not involved in any of those things. In fact, Chris Kelly's stuff had nothing to do with, neither one of them were, because they were raising money for me, campaign funds. Mm-hmm. Neither one of them were charged with anything relating to improperly raising money for me. The stuff was related to their business dealings and how they operated in their individual capacities, not with regard to me. Chris Kelly, who took his life because of the pressure they were putting on him, didn't pay his full amount of taxes. He wrote off a gambling debt of something like $150,000, which was ridiculous to do and wrong to do. But he got caught doing that. Had nothing to do with me. And then the other thing was evidently he was – paying kickbacks to some guy at American Airlines who was given a roofing business at O'Hare. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing about that. It had nothing to do with me as governor. Um, but they were so determined to destroy me that they were putting all this pressure on him to say things about me. What Alan Dershowitz, the law professor, calls composing, not just singing, but composing against somebody to save yourself, that what he did was he took his own life on the eve of reporting to prison because they were threatening him with more time and he wasn't going to do it. There's a lot wrong with the way these prosecutors operate. I won't go into all of that. And I will say just briefly, based on my long, unhappy journey, what I discovered was something that I never really knew, never thought about before, because I mostly trusted those people. Mm -hmm. I thought they were the good guys. But that whole federal criminal justice system is a broken, corrupt system, and it's a racist system. And I saw black guys in prison, friends of mine, drug dealers, yes. Guilty, yes. But these unbelievable sentences that they're giving these guys on first offenses, nonviolent, yeah. 25 years, destroying their lives, giving them no chance at a second chance. It's a bad system and it's broken and corrupt. And it's an example of what is wrong with America today on almost every level. And you know what it is, Felix? 
goes to that corruption part two, goes to censorship, goes to government surveillance. It goes to uh, how we get our information. It's monopolies. It's unchecked power. And, you know, and as Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So now you have the Silicon Valley, you know, with the power that they have because there's no competition and they can get away and do whatever with whatever they want to do and bring their power to bear. Corporate media, the same thing. Political leaders in both parties, when they get that kind of power, they use it the same way. In Illinois, it was Madigan who was the epitome of that. And I just feel like any system that we have in America, whether it has to do with making our government more responsive and more honest, having our economic policies more just and fair, but also smart, it has to do with, I believe, separating power, not allowing it to be concentrated in any one place because that's ripe for corruption and ripe for abuse. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree, agree more, especially on federal prosecutors. I mean, it is the thing people have always said. Uh, when they want you, they've got you. Yeah, you know. People don't really have a high success rate beating the feds. And, you know, as you said, even people who are guilty, people are getting sentences that should never be given out in prisons. I mean, you were in, they put you in FCI Englewood in Colorado. They put me in the higher security prison where I was in there with murderers and gangbangers and mm-hmm. cartel members and bank robbers, right? I'm yeah. the only governor to be put in a place like that because I wouldn't play ball with them. And they felt like they'd squeeze me and I'd give in. And uh, I just never was going to do it. You know, I think about, you know, these federal prosecutors. We have a historic mayor here. You know, she's a black woman and mm-hmm. she's, she's gay. And that's historic. And I was telling somebody the other day, I think she's been a terrible mayor. And we, if, maybe your viewers don't, or your listeners no, I don't agree care with about you. that. No, we, but I I, mean, what I like about her is, the, I, I like these things about her, that she's black, that she's a woman, mm-hmm. that she's gay. What I don't like is she's a former U.S. attorney. Yep, absolutely. Okay? That kills all the other three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go, I'm sorry. No, to, no, to, no, no problem. To, uh, to yeah, no, it, it is, it's an awful system. And as you said, I mean, monopoly power. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned how you always assume these were the good guys. I think most Americans kind of passively assume that. And it does take until they have some interaction with them. Right. With even, I mean, not even federal prosecutors, police. You know, police always pull really high with people. You can have one bad experience, though. You can go your entire life not having one. You can have one bad experience where a cop is revenue collecting or he he just wants to feel some personal power over you. And you can realize how powerless you are. No question. It goes to, again, human nature and Mm -hmm. the, the, the potential of people to abuse their power and take advantage of others when they have unlimited power and unchecked power. That's why you have to be, the system has to be so, so much better at, putting in those checks and balances and being vigilant to protect the rights of the individual. Look, I was, again, eight years in prison. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was at the mercy of prison cars, you know, correctional officers. They're cops. Now, my personal experience is that for, you know, every bad cop, and there are bad cops, of course, I'm a victim of bad cops because I know I didn't break a single law, and those people are liars, and they're corrupt, and they're scumbags, okay, the people who did what they did to me. But- in my experience for police officers, yeah, the bad ones, of course there are, but there's 10 good ones, maybe 100 good ones for every bad one. And I would say that that proportion of politicians, the bad ones to the good ones, isn't as good as that. No, okay? probably not, no. Yeah, they're just, you know, and I would say it's more about being sincere versus being fake. For every sincere politician, there's 100 fake ones. But don't you feel like, okay, I, you know, in my opinion, I would think the ratio of bad cops to good cops, it's probably closer to what you would see in the U.S. House of Reps of bad to good, <laughs> bad, bad, my, huh? my personal opinion. <laughs> but like, okay, let's say it's, you know, one good one or one bad one, mm-hmm. nine, nine good ones. Mm-hmm. 
But if the good one's on the force, like he gets to retire, he gets to do all this shit to people, he gets to throw people's lives away. Mm-hmm. Don't the nine ones kind of become bad cops if they're just letting him do it? Well, you know, you know, you, you talk about, I'll, I'll speak to my own personal experience. I, I still have to believe that as bad as the U.S. attorneys were that did this to me, mm-hmm. and I have this bias now against Mayor Lightfoot because she's one of them. Mm-hmm. But you see what they do is they circle the wagons because they're part of the same group and the same organization. Yeah. So one of theirs goes rogue. They protect them and cover up for them because they're part of the same team. And it's an us versus them mentality. And many of them have morphed into the very criminals they're chasing, use the same means, mm-hmm. the same immoral, dishonest means to go after the criminals. And they become that. And I think they don't do it purposefully. I just think in that, in that war, it, it just happens. That's another reason why we've got to come up with some sort of ways to hold everybody accountable everywhere. Mm-hmm. And yes, you have a bad police officer on the streets who does bad things like the cop in Minneapolis. Make him and be responsible and hold that person responsible and accountable. And there needs to be more of that, I believe, in every level yeah. uh, of our society, including politicians so, and judges. Absolutely. Not every judge is on the level either. I'm sorry. Go uh, ahead. No, please. yeah. I mean, like, there are ones as dramatic as that guy in Pennsylvania who had the contract with the youth detention center who was sending kids away who didn't even do anything. But Unbelievable. there are even smaller corruptions from you know the lowest circuit court all the way to the very top, always. Yeah. Same things we talked about. But I, I am I am interested in how you how you came to sort of I mean, I think anyone going through a federal trial and being sent to a place, you know, a place that frankly shouldn't exist, FCI Englewood, uh, would go through that. But could you describe your journey in that? Mm-hmm. Your 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 journey, you know, being convicted, because you there was about a year period where you were, you were kind of, you were really lobbying the public in a way in later 2008, 2009. And you were, I mean, I've known that you've always really liked Richard Nixon. You were a bit, you, you went to the Upper East Side to meet him when you were a kid. Yeah. You, you, you waited outside his apartment, but you kind of like he was for a little bit, you were defiant. And then, you know, you're sentenced, you're, you're in the feds. What was that journey like? Like, who? Sure. What are some of the people you talked to that sort of changed your changed your mind on that? Well, you know, I get. We should spend some time on this if you'd like. Uh, Absolutely, because it was you know a long time. It was, yeah, it was two thousand eight hundred ninety six days. Yeah, um, and again, like I said, the first thirty two months I was in that higher security prison, and you know, if you watch movies about what prisons look like, that's where I was. My home was a six foot by eight foot prison cell. Mm-hmm. Four cement walls, big heavy iron door that shuts you in, a little window with these bars on it, bunk bed, me and another guy, and I'm on the top bunk. And they they, they restrict your movements and uh and they have all kinds of different rules that the that the Bureau of Prisons tries to enforce. But then there's also a, a culture in prison that's very different from everyday life. It's a it's purposely segregated. Yeah. Long race, ethnicity, you know, so there's you know, like for example, in the uh, what they call the chow hall, where you eat. And by the way, the food sucks, yeah. as you can imagine. I mean, if your listeners are taxpayers and don't want to see their tax dollars being wasted, I can assure them it's not being wasted on the food that the prisoners are getting because yeah. it sucks. But when when you go to eat in that chow hall, it's all segregated and divided, and you're not supposed to, like a white guy is not supposed to sit where the black guys sit, or a white guy is not supposed to sit where the Latinos sit or the Pacific Islanders sit, or the Native Americans sit, because I was in a Western prison, so there were a lot of Native American inmates there too. 
mm-hmm. and they they live on the federal reservation. So even small crimes there require that they go to a federal prison, not to a state prison. So, uh, you know, that was a new thing for me because I got called in within, I don't know, the second or third day that I was there. I was called in by the, the top brass, the captains and the lieutenants, because they said that they'd, they'd heard that I was walking on walking the track in the yard, prison yard, with a black guy. And he was, he, it was, it's true. He was from Chicago. He had already been in his, in his 16th year, drug dealer from the South Side. And uh, his name was Slim. Everybody had, a lot of these guys, not everybody, but a lot of these guys have nicknames, you know? Yeah, yeah. And a uh, nice guy, Slim. And he was a homie, you know? He's from Chicago. I'm from Chicago. Yeah. Right? So it was a natural thing to walk around and talk to him and develop a relationship with him. It's a very lonely place, as you can imagine. Yeah. And uh, they were telling me, you can't be doing that. You can't be walking around or hanging around black guys. You got to stay with your own. They call it, you got to ride with your own car. So they break it down that way. I defied that. And I told them, look, and they said, the reason is for your own safety, because if you end up having a difference agreement with a person of another color or race or, uh, you know, ethnic group, no one's going to get your back if they feel like you're on your own. Your own people, the white guys, won't protect you if you do that. And so they sent me to these two white guys who turned out to be white supremacist Aryan, Aryan nation type yeah. guys. And I uh, politely declined, you know, and I was polite to go see them, but I had no interest in being involved. And over time, you know, I got my footing and frankly was able to develop real close relationships with a lot of different guys, including a lot of black guys. And at one point in time, an older inmate who'd been there for, on heroin for like 26 years, an older black guy, if, if, um, if they made a movie about him, uh, Morgan Freeman would play him. He had that look. And he was in, considered an elder statesman in that prison because a lot of the guys would come to him for advice, life advice, yeah, and for legal advice because he knew the law. He was one of those jailhouse lawyers. You yeah, know? Again, yeah. he'd been there for 26 years. Nice man from Chicago, Mr. B. God bless him. I miss him. He was close to me. I, I spent, we developed a real close relationship with him. And it was a big deal to him to make a statement shortly before he finally was able to go home, that uh, he and I sit together in the black section. And then the next day he would come to the white section and sit with me. And we did it. And we thought we were making a big, like a big statement for civil rights. And it kind of petered out. No one really cared <laughs> once we did it. But he, it mattered to him and it actually mattered to me. And I was really happy to do that. So they had their rules, you know, their yeah. culture. Um, but they weren't hard and fast and they weren't enforced by the law, by the law enforcement people. I think something like that would be hard for them to enforce. Yeah. But they did discourage you from doing the, that sort of interaction with people from another place, which is really kind of going in the opposite direction of where I think the world should go. But yeah. that, that's probably for a different discussion. But I, I've got a million stories. Ask me a whole bunch. I feel like that's I can tell a, you they, what it was like. They, ba- they basically wanted you to join the Aryan Brotherhood. I think they did, yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. insane. Yeah. But I'm sure that happens in pretty much every federal prison. Probably a lot of state ones. That is insane. Well, you know, I think because of, you know, my notoriety, I think that people were, there was a certain fear factor that a lot of those inmates had because mm-hmm. their concern was if they fucked around too much with me, they could get, you know, they can get in serious trouble because that would be potentially newsworthy. Yeah. And so in some respects that gave me a, a bit a veil of protection mm-hmm. where some other guy, some other white guy that comes into prison, they might've enforced that he be with them more often, or they would have been less, they were not forgiving, but they would have been, they might've like 
I'm going to swear here because that's oh, what you do in prison. Swear as they might have fucked with him more because yeah. he had the temerity to go sit with the black guys and yeah. have lunch. That you know what I mean? They would force their own guys by punishing that guy. Yeah, but they wouldn't do that to me because I, I had a certain notoriety about me, and I never feared it. By the way, by the way, when they did the, to me what they did, and I told that to these cops early on, I said, "Look, not, I don't need protection. I don't. Get, I, I fear nobody in this fucking place. Frankly, what these motherfuckers did to me. Now I'm talking real here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What yeah, these yeah. motherfuckers did to me. Okay, these corrupt yeah. prosecutors. I fear nobody. They can't hurt me. Nobody can hurt me here any more than I've hurt already." Okay, I'm going to do what I feel is right. I'm going to follow your rules, but that ain't a written rule, and therefore I'm not following it. And I'm just, you know, and I'm not going to spend a whole life trying to be someone who honestly tries to live by, you know, my Christian faith, Mm -hmm. you know, love your neighbor, and now suddenly walk away from that because, you know, you guys have a certain culture here that I don't, frankly, agree with. And uh, because it's not, you're not requiring me to do it by law, I'm not doing it. And uh, so yeah, I had that attitude where I was so lonely and heartbroken and missing my young children and my wife and my life was brought to ruin. I was filled with bitterness and anger at those sons of bitches who did what they did to me, corrupt motherfuckers. You feel abandoned and betrayed by people you thought you can rely on and then they run from you. You know, politics is a rough and tumble business. Harry Truman said, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. Yeah. Right? He's talking about politicians. And once the shit hit the fan, they all ran. It's funny because the day before I got arrested, I'm the governor of Illinois, the fifth largest state at that time. I can just about get anybody on the telephone, right? Including the president. Then when I got arrested, no one's calling me back, right? Yeah. Not surprising, human nature. But there I am now in prison and I'm beginning this long ass journey, 14 fucking years. Am I swearing too much? No, I, oh okay. my, no, as much as you want. <laughs> Don't even think about it. Okay. No, I swear to God, yeah. No one's regulating us. All right, well, 14 years. And, you know, it's, you can't even see the flicker of a light at the end of the tunnel. It's yeah. so far away before I can come home and be with my family again. That's where I want to be. My little daughter, Annie, who today just left for college. Yeah. She's 18. She was eight when I left. And uh, my daughter, Amy, was um, 14. So, uh, you know, when, when they do that to you and, they, and, and you're in that place and you got that long, long way to go, you know, part of you wishes like, you know, I, frankly, I wish somebody would just shoot me. You, you know did- what I mean? I w- yeah, that's what I was going to ask. You didn't, I'm not going to say that you wanted to die, but it seemed like when you got in, from what you're saying, it sounds like you didn't care if you lived or died. You thought right. if de- if death comes for you, well, that's my number. That's in God's hands. Right. I don't give a shit anymore. Is that kind of what you felt? More than that, I felt uh, that, and I felt, to quote one of the great Greek tragedians, Sophocles, death at the last, the deliverer. Mm-hmm. That's one of, one of his tragedies, right? Yeah. It frees you up from that. And, 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 you know, the pain that you're feeling, you know, and, and, and all the, just that heartache and that loss, that loneliness and all those other things I just described. So it would have been liberating in some respects. Now, did I want to die really? No. Yeah. And even if I did, there's no way I could. You know why? Because I have two little girls. Yeah. And I don't want to hurt them any more than they've been hurt already. And one of the things I learned when I was in prison, Felix, was I, I will say this, you can do a lot of reading. You can catch up on your reading. And I, I, I read a lot. You can also exercise and work out a lot, which I did. And that was very good physically, but it was also good from an emotional standpoint, you know, for uh, morale, you know, to keep yeah. yourself physically active. But reading a lot. And I, I read a book written by a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl. It's called Man's Man Search, Search for, for Meaning. Meaning. Yeah, I read it three times in those. It's an 2000. amazing book. 
Yes. You, you know, he wrote that book in nine days. Yeah. Sold more than 12 million copies worldwide. And it's a small little book, and I recommend it. Everyone should read it. Everybody should read it. Because he talks about, and what he went through was a thousand times worse than me. I mean, he was a Holocaust survivor, and he lost everything. His loved, one, loved ones, including his beloved wife. But he says in the book, and he talks about how even then, just the contemplation, just the, just the thought. He's in Auschwitz, by the way. Just the yeah. thought of his wife was enough to give him purpose to live and meaning, just being able to contemplate her, the consciousness of that. And then, of course, as you, he writes on in the book, you know, you get the strong sense that, you know, when you find yourself in a situation that's really difficult, and it doesn't have to be as difficult as that. Just everyday people go through real hard times all the time, and they do it with quiet heroism, right? Mm -hmm. And no one's writing books about them. They're not making movies about most everybody, but they're yeah. dealing with their difficulties heroically. And I think what gets most people motivated, and I, this was very helpful to me, was the point that he makes in his book, Victor Frankl that you have people in your life who you love. And even if you don't want to have to endure the things that you're enduring, you do it for them. And you, you have that higher responsibility. And that, just that, uh, that realization gave me, it was inspiring to me and it motivated me to be strong as much as I can. And to set the best example I could for my kids and, uh, and my wife, but more so my kids because Patty's strong and, she, and she's wonderful. But that that was in some respects, I I I, I would say a godsend that I discovered yeah. that book early on in prison, tremendously helpful to me. But I read it three times during those eight years away. And you think that's kind of that's kind of what like got you out of not caring if you lived or died. You thought I have to live for somebody. Correct. I, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the first, it, look, I'll give you a quick little example of how brutal that experience was. I mean, it's, it, it, I laugh about this. I even laughed about it then. But it's, uh, you know, the, you, you have to discipline your mind when you're going through something like that. You know, when you're leaving home, as, you, as I did for as long as I was going. And in my, I tried to approach it one day at a time, right? Yeah. Not look too far ahead. I had hopes. I believed deeply in my, in my uh, appeal and felt like if I get an honest appellate court, there's no way we can lose this. They're using an unlawful standard to convict me, a standard that if it were applied to everybody in politics, presidents, governors, senators, congressmen, they all go to prison too. Yeah. You can ask for campaign contributions as, from someone that currently has an interest in what you're doing in government so long as you don't threaten expressly or promise expressly. There was never that. They call that a quid pro quo. They don't even allege a quid pro quo in my case. So I figure I have a chance to win. I mean, I'll win if they just follow the law. But I had that fear, you know, you're up against such powerful forces. They can't let this turn the other way because they hijacked a governor from 13 million people in Illinois. They got to bury this and whitewash it, which is what they ultimately did. Yeah. Even the appellate courts aren't honest, okay? But they couldn't uphold the, the, the Senate seat one because government was shut down. So they, they upheld three fundraising requests where I don't even make the requests. But anyway, so there I am. But I've got some hope that maybe I might get lucky in the appellate court. So- the 14 years, you know, I, I, I looked at it like, you know, when the appeal hits, it was it would probably take a few years. So I was able to discipline my mind and not let myself think too far ahead because that's a daunting thing. So I don't know, the fourth day there, I get called in by the case manager. She wants to review, you know, my file. You know, it's a beginning. This is a process, an orientation that every new inmate goes through. And she's a nice woman and she's going being very professional about what she's doing and she's going through the whole thing and she says, going through the paperwork and she says, okay, well, 
she says, I, here's your exit date. So she's going to tell me when I get to go home, right? I never wanted to think that far ahead because it's fucking scary. Yeah. Okay? I wasn't letting my mind think that, but I had no choice. She starts, she's telling me this. She says, well, your exit date. And by the way, this was probably, I reported to prison on May 15th or March 15th, March 15th, Thursday, 2012. So this is probably that Monday. Okay. Yeah. So that'd be what? March 19th, maybe March 20th, 2012. There I am sitting with her. She's going over my file and she says, well, your exit day is May 2024. Okay, now that's a body blow, man. I can't even hear that, yeah. Man, right? This is March of 2012. She's telling me I'll finally be able to get to go home in May of 2024, okay? So she says that to me, and she says, do you understand that? And I grunt out an acknowledgement, yes, okay? But I've been hit by Mike Tyson in the solar plexus, man. I mean, I'm bent over here, but I'm not showing it. You follow me? She then says, but I've got some good news for you. And I grunt this out. I moan it out. I say, well, what could that be? And she says, well, I'm going to recommend six months halfway house. So I'm quickly calculating my mind. Oh, if I behave myself real well, I'll be in a halfway house a few days before Christmas, 2023. Not much comfort in what she's telling me. Yeah, 11 and a half years versus 12. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. Um, And I bring that up to point out how well, just how long it was, you know, and how yeah. and what you're facing. And, you know, and frankly, while it was really bad for me, and I had it a lot worse than a lot of other people, mine was worse than a lot of other people. On the other hand, there's a lot of people in there who had it a lot worse than me. So, you know, I guess suppose, I suppose a lot of it's relevant. But, I mean, I, I should say uh, relative. A lot of it's relative, but in any way you cut it, it's bad, and it's hard. And uh, I've been very lucky and fortunate, though, to have, you know, a loving wife, loving daughters. And I got really lucky with President Trump. Sure, I'm glad I did Celebrity Apprentice. (laughs) Well, I mean, Patty, Patty campaigned really hard for like even before Trump, she was really out there trying to trying to point out that you know, as you said, that if you applied the same standard to you as you did to everything else, everyone would be locked up. That this is a ridiculous sentence, but yeah, no, President Trump, he commuted your sentence last year through executive order, and he trumped President Obama. You know, I really didn't, never did anything for Trump, but I was the first governor to endorse Obama when he was considered still a long shot against Hillary. Yeah. And uh, so he gets credibility right off the bat because he gets a Democratic governor from the fifth biggest state supporting him from his home state. And there were a lot of other things that we did to help him, including raise money. And uh, when they arrested me, you know, you know how it works, Felix. They, they They don't want you to talk about the guy beneath you. Right. It's about going after the guy above you. But there's only one person above a governor because there's 50 governors, 100 senators. There's only one president. And Obama initiated the conversations. That's undeniable. That's one testimony. And that's what exactly happened. And they knew that. And so they've got me in custody. And I'm not going to talk about me or him because I didn't do anything wrong. As far as I know, he didn't either. But he has to know. I could have easily made my life a little easier had I, frankly, was willing to go up and compose against him. Which I was never going to do. What would you? And, what what would you have said? What would you have given them? Well, okay. the way it works is that was never an option. I never even yeah. thought about it. So it was, I oh. I don't really know what how to answer that. But the way it works is they would suggest to your lawyer. This is how corrupt these people are. Yeah. You look if he's hey if you can get your client to say X Y and Z, you know we'll give him eighteen months. You follow me? Yeah. That's how they do it. They float it through the lawyer, so you can't. They don't do it to you. 
It's so fucking corrupt. Yeah. Okay, and so they would have done that with my attorneys because they had me in custody. They arrested a sitting governor at six o'clock in the morning with SWAT teams around my house. That's never done. That's designed to break your will to resist, scare the shit out of you, and make you just start getting on your knees and crumble and tell them whatever they want to hear. Right? That's what they do it for. It's yeah. a tactic. But I would, you know, and I think they miscalculated because I think they thought I would do it, and I would. I was never going to do it. Just everybody around me did it to me. Right. Yeah. But I wasn't going to do it to anybody, and I certainly wasn't going to do it to myself because I know I didn't break a law, and I was elected by the people to fight for the Constitution and for the rule of law. Now, if I'm a businessman, Felix, and I'm facing what I'm facing, and they have this uncontrolled power and unlimited resources, and they can try you a hundred times if they don't convict you the first time, which they didn't. In my case, they try me a second time. That's another unusual thing. Only I get that. Senator Menendez gets his case thrown out. Yeah. After they didn't convict him of the, the still first representing time. New Jersey. Yeah. Right. Day. Right, John Edwards doesn't get tried a second time, but they did it to me. Anyway, my point is, I feel like I. By the way, Obama's best friend was given a top position by me, the Illinois Department of Public Health. His friend Eric Whitaker. Mm-hmm. Obama would ask for stuff, and we would do it. Yeah. So then my troubles happen, and I get it. He's the first black president, any president. It's big. Yeah. And sometimes you 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 know you take the hit for somebody in a higher position because there's a greater good that's being served. Yeah. And now we have this historic event with the first black president. It's, it, I don't want to screw that up. And I get that he's got to run from me. And he probably made a deal with those people that he wasn't going to do anything to help me. Okay. I know that now looking back, but I was never going to do anything to hurt him. But uh, years go by. I'm, I'm, I'm not getting justice in the courts. Unlike the other, what is it? Like a hundred something thousand plus federal inmates. I have access to the Democratic President Obama through third parties, like David Axelrod, who used to work for me and work for Obama, and was working with Patty to make the case to Obama to send me home. Sent letters written by my daughters, same age as his two beautiful daughters, talking about, would you help, would you send your, our father home? And we were sensitive to Obama's politics. We felt like, okay, well, he's going to be leaving January 20th, uh, 2017, he doesn't need the visual of him leaving the White House at the same time I'm leaving the shit house, right? So just cut my sentence in half from 14 years to seven. Yeah. Which would mean I will have served more time in federal prison than any governor in history. George Ryan didn't do that. He didn't do that. And people died in his situation, right? Young kids. Mm -hmm. He did less time. Just do it. I'll leave in October of 2017, seven years. You can easily justify that. Just do it that way. And I... Like I said, I, he knew about it because people were directly were talking to him about it. And when he allowed some FALN terrorists to get out of prison, he let them out. And then a guy that was uh, the Chelsea Manning who was in there for treason. I don't really think you can call that treason. Okay, maybe not. But, but that was the charge though, right? The crime? Yeah, I don't yeah. think she, no one's ever demonstrated that her leaks uh, led to anyone's death. Fair I mean, enough. Even, even the, I mean, like, the things that Chelsea Manning revealed, those were war crimes. Those were good. She's revealing crimes. Like I don't know if you've seen the collateral murder I, I, video. I haven't. No, it's awful stuff. You know what? What we were doing overseas. Yeah, terrible stuff. And you know they tortured her. They tortured her. They they had her in isolation for a really long time. And she's she's out now. She seems to be doing well. Uh, but yeah, no. Well, he left. He was letting her out. Yeah. In the days leading up to it, and I felt like. Well, if he's doing that and he's doing the, the FALN terrorists that wanted to blow up federal buildings and both of them did time. I mean, yeah. She, she did something like seven years, I think. 
maybe a little bit more. I'm not quite sure. But See, it's about like seven, eight years. Those were indications to me. He's going to, you know, I'll probably, I should get a commutation. He'll probably send me yeah. home too, cut my sentence in half. And he didn't. And, uh, well, that was, of course, disappointing, right? Why do you think he didn't do that? Because he was involved in the case, because he started yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. I think he did it. I think it's, I think because he was the one who sent the emissary to begin the conversations about making a deal on Valerie Jarrett for the Senate seat. And I think they made a deal with him, the prosecutors, immediately after that he does nothing to help me. They'll do nothing to go after him. And it's unusual that the United States attorneys appointed by a Republican president, Bush, yeah. appointed Fitzgerald and those people, okay, would stay on after the Democrat comes in. But suddenly they were able to stay on for many, many years after that and didn't leave until they threw, got me out, or got, threw me in prison. They stayed just to get me. And Obama let him stay. That was part of the deal, I think. And I think part of the deal was that he, he wouldn't do anything later on either to help. I think that's what happened. I don't think it was out of meanness. I think it was out of just uh, selfishness. Well, yeah, no, selfishness. yeah. Obama's pretty selfish politician. And I mean, yeah, I mean, even, even with the idea of like keeping up appearances, it's not like Obama is really incredibly involved in, Demo in Democratic part politics at this point. He's a media personality. He's, he's, a, he's a producer. He's not a... You don't really see him in Democratic politics unless it's like making phone calls in the last minute before Super Tuesday to get mm -hmm. people buying Biden, right. to, you know, break the NBA strike, as we also saw him do that year. But, like, generally not super involved. So you, you think he made, like, an eight-year-long deal with Fitzgerald. I do. So, you know what a 302 is? That's an FBI interview. Mm -hmm. And when you're the on the on the bad end of what they're doing, like you're the one, the defendant, the defendant has a right to all the 302s, the interviews <clears throat> that the FBI conducts with all the principals involved in the case. So therefore, I, I had a right, legal right, to Obama's 302s to see what he was saying about the sale of the Senate seat, the alleged sale of the Senate seat. And to this day, they, they never gave it to us. And that, that, that alone should have reversed the case. They and denied, they're covering up what he told the FBI in that interview days after I was arrested. And another thing that is a matter of fact is one of the 302s that we did have is Rahm Emanuel's. And Rahm Emanuel was asked by the FBI when they interviewed him, when was the first time you heard that the governor was arrested? And he said, half an hour before when Pat Fitzgerald, that's the U.S. attorney, called me to tell me that we're going to go arrest the sitting governor. Now, that's very inappropriate, not on Rom's part, but on their part, yeah. Fitzgerald and the prosecutors. Rom was a, all over those FBI tapes with me, giving me advice, giving me suggestions, asking me for stuff, yeah. asking me for political favors. And for them to contact an interested party, directly interested party in a case, to let them know they're going to arrest me half an hour, it is inappropriate and wrong. Yeah. But they did that too. So I, I think that, I mean, it was a political hit job and once it happened and they, they had me in custody and saw I wasn't going to play ball and compose against anybody, including Rahm or Obama, they went to those guys and made a deal with them. And then I was pretty much, you know, thrown under the bus and uh, my old friends were gone. And all I can tell you is it has to be the hand of God, Felix, that I would do Celebrity Apprentice. Because, right? Think about this. I never watched that show. I met yeah. Trump one time before, two times before. And he has me on that show and he's 
extremely nice to me and kind to me on a personal level, off camera, that you never see. Never am I imagining in 2009 we're filming that, and the last episode was 2010, March or February of 2010, that he'd go on to be president of the United States. Never. Yeah. Do I even think this guy's ever going to run for office? Why would he? And that he does and becomes president, and he's my last line of defense, and he saves my ass. I mean, it's really, to me, it's an example of uh, divine intervention. Have you, did, did you talk to him after? Have you, you talked to him recently? No, no. I, I've thanked him through the media. Mm. And I'm always going to be grateful to him personally. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm really, uh, I'm not at all objective when it comes to Trump on a personal level because of what he did for me, you know? Yeah. I mean, basically gave me my life back. Yeah. No, yeah. understandable. Is and he it, got nothing for it. I mean, how does that help in a Democratic governor? That's true. That, that is one thing he did. I do not see how it could benefit him. Yeah. I, I, it doesn't benefit him at all. I mean, not yeah. at all. Um, is there anyone from that period that you still talk to? I mean, I know, you know, your father-in-law, that's your father. Yeah. Like that's, that's family, but like anyone, you haven't talked to Joe Kerry in a while. I know, I never really knew Joe Kerry. I met yeah. the guy like twice. Yeah. I'd like to kick that guy's ass. He's a fucking <laughs> coward motherfucker. And he's a corrupt motherfucker. Sorry. No, <laughs> don't If apologize. I ever see him, I'm kicking his ass. I'm off probation. <laughs> I could do it. And that fucker will cry. All right, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, no, yeah. I was I was reading up yeah. on Kerry before this, and there, it, you know, the writing on him is hilarious because it's it's like he's a hot, he's a you know super democratic strategist. He worked for Carter's reelection campaign. Yeah. Then Mo he ran Mondale's campaign in the Midwest, where he lost. Every single state except Minnesota. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's close to Gore. He used to brag yeah, to me about yeah. Gore. I've met this guy like three times, maybe two in my life. Yeah. Maybe three. But uh, yeah, he was supposedly a Gore guy. And then when the pressure came on, he just like totally crumbled and would say whatever they wanted to say. You know, and look, I, I think there's a responsibility when you know there's wrongdoing yeah. to, to do it. You know, that's like, you're not, that's in prison, that's like, They'll fuck you up if you're a snitch. Okay? Yeah, yeah. But I don't. I don't think that's wrong. When there's wrongdoing, I think you have an obligation to in to, politics. Yeah, to cooperate with that, right? So I'm not. I don't want to be too critical of that. But he's just a sniveling, coward, hypocrite, corrupt guy who made a lot of money being a cheater and a corrupt coward mm -hmm. on other people's stuff. And then when the shit hit the fan, he was the first one with no backbone to you know to do what he did on other people. And whatever he said about me had no impact on my, on my case because none of that stuff was even charged. But um, in, in the second trial anyway, it was ridiculous stuff in the first trial. I don't even know if that was his stuff, but I met a lot of guys like that in prison. You know, it's funny because my wife Patty and my kids would come and visit me, you know, sometimes. In the beginning, it was maybe two or three times a year. And then as time went by, it was maybe once a year, once every... 18 months just because it was harder for them. And I, it's hard for the kids to go have to then get a taste of their dad and then have to leave. Yeah. Right. And so it was better the way it evolved, but there were visits all through those years and somewhere down the road, probably, uh, I don't know, the third or fourth year, I think at one of the visits, Patty asked me, you know, maybe, I don't even know if she asked me, but I think I may have just told her, I was just telling her about white collar bullshitters. And and how I felt closer to to the drug dealers, yeah, you know, because they were, you know, they were businessmen and entrepreneurs, and they uh, 
they were selling a product that was illegal and they should be held responsible, treated justly and fairly and mercifully. I believe everybody, sh there should be elements of that for everybody. But that they were just better guys than a lot of these white collar criminals who are such fucking bullshitters. You had Jeff Skilling in there. The same time Jeff you were Skilling there, was yeah. in that higher security prison with me. Actually, I, I'm, I, he, he didn't strike me that way, like I'm describing. Really? Now. I didn't really know him that well. I wasn't that close to him. And, you know, he, he insisted he didn't do anything wrong. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I know that the Arthur Anderson case that was connected to Enron was all crap. It was bullshit, too. It was the Supreme Court ruled nine to nothing. They didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. And this federal prosecutor is now on CNN, did that to them. He should be in prison. But I'm talking about these white-collar guys, like, hedge, like venture capital guys, hedge fund guys, Ponzi scheme guys, mm -hmm. con men. They're con men. Yes. And they're liars, and they just tell lies. And they're, just, and they're cowards, too. Joe Carey's that guy. He's one of those. And uh, if he was in prison, he'd get his ass kicked. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> is, there, is there anyone? I was interested, it, you know, because it sounds like, I mean, like, prison is hell, federal prison, another layer of hell. But it sounds like you, you know, you had a group of friends in there and, you know, socially at least, yeah. you know, you, you could find a way to like day by day get along with people and even had people, you know, you look forward to talking to. But was there anyone in there that like they just they instantly just didn't like you? Yes. Yes, of course. And that's not surprising, you know. But I have to say this, uh, Felix, I got to know a lot of guys there. Again, it was a long time. Mm hmm. And I have warm feelings for a lot of those guys. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm, now that I'm off probation, I communicate with some of them. Oh. And I'm working to try to help one of them, my friend Spade, the black guy, his name is Joan Air Moore. What a great guy. He's done 13, 12, 13 years already. First time nonviolent drug offender. I talked to his mom all the time, trying to help him. I tried to help with the Trump administration. Maybe we, we could have had a chance to help him had there not been the January 6th situation. Yeah, you know? yeah. Now it's harder because Biden's there and I'm sort of, my politics is... I'm sort of orphaned, you know, I don't have, I don't have a home. Yeah. And, uh, but, but I'm trying through third parties to see if I can help him. And there's some others. So what, I guess what I'm telling you is there are a lot of guys there, almost all of them guilty. I, you know, some were innocent mm -hmm. and I'm not the one to judge it, but I, I, I have to believe I'm the, I'm not the only one they did it to. And some of the other guys that would tell some of their stories made perfect sense that they were extorted out to, to plead guilty to stuff because they were threatened with life sentences if they didn't. Yeah. And these prosecutors boast of a 97% conviction, right? Because they got the rules that are all in their favor. All the resources yeah, in the world. It's not yeah. a fair fight at all. It's not even, there's no, it's, it's, a, it's a pretense to think that there's such a thing as a fair trial in that federal system. It just doesn't exist. And I, I mean, you see what happened. I don't know how much you followed the Sackler case. I don't think about it, no. The, you know, the family that made billions of dollars off of opiates, knowingly pushed opiates on, you know, got people knowingly addicted, profited off of it. But I mean, I always think it's interesting when they, the feds fight a case against people who also have virtually unlimited resources of family with billions of dollars. It always, the Sacklers had to pay like a few billion, not, uh, not necessarily an amount of money they'll miss or even notice in the long run. And usually when the feds are fighting someone with at least they can spend a few tens of millions, hundreds of millions, it doesn't seem to go the same way. You mean they they get a better deal? Yeah, yeah, no, better no, result. no, yeah. The Sacklers are not. Yeah, they are not taking that flight. They're not going to the feds. Right. So you know, they, they these federal prosecutors get they they get invested in the case. Yeah. And they their whole career is now rested on that. And if they don't bring the guy down, their careers 
harmed. Yeah. And so they it, it becomes not at all about justice or what's right. It becomes about their career. Yeah. And if they can bring down somebody in a prominent place like a governor, those people that you're talking about, and maybe they did it, those people, I don't know. But if they don't get something, they're not going to get the big career advancement they're looking for, or they might even have difficulties in their careers. So they, they, they pull on all stops. And so after my first trial, they were dangling a real light sentence, 18 months if I'd give in. Yeah. They dangled it. It was not a hard offer, but it was dangled. They cut my brother loose, and they had my older brother, who was totally honest and innocent. And you, got, you guys would have never given each other up. Like, that's always the sense I got. You guys are very close, always have been. We, we, our relationship's been harmed very much by this. My brother uh, wrongfully was accused of all those things. Now, he was never going to, like, you know, make things up against me. Right. But after the second, first trial, they got to him, and they cut his they cut him loose. He was, before that, they were trying to get him to get me to plead guilty. Yeah. Which I wasn't going to do, and I remember the conversation vividly and telling him, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Yeah. And our parents didn't raise us like this. I know it's terrible what they've done to you, but you 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 know none of this is we've done nothing wrong. Well, anyway, they tested that and didn't work. They still cut him loose because he was a very compelling witness in the yeah. first trial. But I think they made a deal with him where he wouldn't agree to testify on my behalf in the second trial. Yeah, he took the Fifth Amendment, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, my point is, they were willing to just take eighteen months if I would just give in, because again, they knew how corrupt it was what they were doing, that if they didn't get me, they'd be vulnerable at some point. I think that explains the 14-year sentence eventually. Bury me and bury the truth and have people have short memories and forget about all of it, and they can go on and become multimillionaire lawyers, which is what's happening now with some of them, and one of them is actually a judge, Yeah, which is, you know, anyway. Um, at least I'm home, you know? Yeah. And uh, I've learned a lot. And frankly, I'll say this too, Felix. You know what? I'm not here to espouse any kind of religious view on anybody. Yeah. But that whole experience brought me closer to my God and it's given me a better perspective on things. I was able to read the Bible in ways in prisons that I never read it like that before mm-hmm. because I was always so busy trying to get ahead. And there, the object isn't to get things done in the course of a day. The object is to get through the day. Yes. And use things to help you get through the day. That's your object. What can best help you get through the day in the weeks, the months, the seasons, and the years, right? And- Reading the Bible, reading history books, even literature, even Shakespeare, believe it or not, was really helpful to me. And it gave me a better perspective. So what I'm saying to you is I truly believe God has a plan for us. It's, it's for us to try to figure it out and then the trust in it and then the, do the best we can to follow what we think is what he wants us to do. For me, I feel like everything I went through gives me a better appreciation for other people's hardships and their suffering and their difficulties. And I would like somehow to be in a place where I can be more helpful to people who are going through their difficult times. Even if not, I, I do nothing else but by example. Mm-hmm. You know, look, you're going through a tough time, but look what I just got through, and I'm still standing. And I frankly feel like I'm fitter than I was. I'm smarter than I was. You look great. Yeah, I feel like, right? Thank you. So even if I just do that, if I'm just helpful to somebody, and they're going through something hard, and they can say, well, he did it, I, I can do it too. I think that would, that, that, That'll be a very good thing. I, I do cameos. You know what those are? Oh, yeah, no. Right, people yeah. that hire me to do a shout-out for somebody at his birthday, their dad, their mom, whatever. Yeah, yeah. My, give, friend, my friend Tom got on there. He's not famous, but he, oh, is he, he, doing found, too? he found a way to weasel on there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Some of the requests I get are, can you give my friend a pep talk, Gov? He just got fired. He's going through some difficult times. You know what that's like. Can you yeah. help him out? I love doing those. 
And yeah. you know, they're supposed to be 30 seconds long. I do right up to the 10 minute limit. And I try to give them as much stuff as I can to try to help some guy or woman who's going through hard times. And so I feel like as bad as it's been, I have so much to be fortunate, blessed, uh, lucky. I'm lucky and grateful. You know, the Vegas odds makers had it nine to one after I was arrested that my wife Patty was going to leave. And the statistics are not betting, but they're fact. Yeah. That if a guy's in prison for more than four years, there's a better than 90% chance that she doesn't stay. Yeah. Right? Especially when he's looking at a long, long time. Yeah. Which is what I still have. Right? Destroys families. And Patty didn't leave. And she was instrumental in getting me home. And the best about her is she's a wonderful mother. And our kids, in spite of it all, knock on wood, are doing just fine. And uh, so I have a lot to be grateful for. And I feel like, I frankly think my, you know, I think my story's not over yet. I, I think there's a lot of work to do. So what, I mean, I know you, you have a, you have a show now. Is, is that the track you think you're, do you think that media generally, do you think that's, that's where you're going to see where the story takes you? You know, I, I hope not, I hope not only that, but yeah. I, I would like that to be part of it just because you can reach a lot of people that way. Yeah. And, and it could lead to other things. I have to play a role in criminal justice reform. I'm a little Absolutely. disappointed that I'm not, is involved in that as I'd like with some of the organizations. I think they're afraid of being associated with me. And that is a little unfortunate because I feel like I can really be helpful. But I'm not going to give up on that because I, I very much want to be active in, in it. I feel that's part of what God would like me to do because mm-hmm. there has to be a reason why I saw that. Look, I feel like I was a great governor. I talked a little bit about some of the stuff I, we did. Open road tolling is another thing, by the way. But, yeah. Um, Here's an area I didn't do good at, and that's clemencies. I did something like 60 or whatever that number is. Not a lot. Could have done so many more. And I would have done a lot more had they let me finish my tenure, my terms, term of office, because when I was leaving office, I would have done a lot, which is what customarily happens. But I did them along the way, and I regret it terribly that I didn't do more. And I didn't know. You see, I didn't go to the office every day saying, get me a pile of clemency requests. I want to read those. It was never on my radar. I didn't campaign on that. I didn't run for that when I was knocking on doors and meeting voters and campaigning around the state. Very few people would talk to me about any of those issues. I'd hear them a little bit in the black community, but for the most part, I wasn't getting it. Yeah. So I didn't feel like that was anything that had this sort of grassroots organic demand from the voter. And it wasn't anything that was a priority of mine. I learned a hard lesson. I sh- it should have been. And I could have done so much more in that area. I did 60, whatever I did. No, not nearly enough. And I'll say this about Pritzker, who I don't like. And I'll tell you, he called Trump twice to try to keep me in prison. I made this guy the director of the Illinois Human Rights Commission. I made him a, gave him a big spot. He called, he's on those FBI tapes asking me to make him senator. Then when I said I couldn't do that, he asked would I make him a, would I appoint him as treasurer or comptroller because the governor can do that. He thought there might be a vacancy there. I said I'd consider that. So he and I had a, a good relationship. I feel like I did a lot of good stuff for him. I always liked him. And then I was shocked that when Trump talked publicly about letting me go home in, in August of 2020, J.B. Pritzker, the Democratic governor, who I had made the director of the Illinois Human Rights Commission, called him not once but twice, pressing him to keep me in prison. And this is a guy Pritzker's always pissing on, Trump. Yeah. He's got the audacity, the chutzpah, to call Trump to say, keep me in prison. He's got young children like I have. You know, it, it gets personal when he's doing it just to you, but it gets really personal when you think he's depriving my daughters of their dad coming home. Why did he do so that? I don't like that fat fuck anymore. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's fine. It is fine. Why right. did he do that? 
I don't know. Going out of his way to do that. That's crazy. I think he's afraid of those FBI tapes, the stuff that I know about him and, you know, with some of the stuff that he was saying. I think he's also got his own problem with that toilet gate thing where he was trying to avoid paying property taxes. Do you think think that's big? I mean, do you think he'll ever... What? The toilet gate thing? Do you think that that will really go anywhere? I, I don't know. I, it's just I, I'm trying to. You're asking me what? Why would? He, what motivate him to do that? Yeah. Because that was good to him, right? Yeah. I'm just speculating. It could have been that Madigan was pressing him to do it. Yeah, maybe. And you know, he gave Madigan ten million dollars. You know, and Madigan was the boss man down there, and you know, Illinois fucked up because of Madigan for all those years. Yeah. It could have been that too, you know. But he did it, and uh, that's something that. Well, it's just hard to forgive, right? I, I like to think that I'm forgiving, but you know, it's, I'm not going to forget it. And yeah, um, but I went off on a tangent. I was talking about something else when I got we were out. talking about clemency. Yeah, I, I'll say this: I was going to play actually praise Prisker. Yeah, yeah. He he seems to be doing pretty good in that area. And Absolutely, I, and I think he deserves credit for that. And uh, otherwise, I think he sucks. <laughs> All right, go ahead. I you know I, I personally have been pleasantly surprised by him. Okay. I you know I wasn't. During that race, you know, I haven't lived here in mm-hmm. a while. I live in New York now, but uh, I was I was interested in Daniel Biss. I didn't think Daniel Biss was that great, but I like. I never heard of him. Who is it? Exactly. Okay. It was a I think Evanston guy, and he was he was sort of running like the Warren Lane oh. of the primary. Okay. He was he snaked uh, an alderman. I liked. He snaked Carlos Rosa over uh, BDS over boycotting Israel, which like. I know that you and I, we probably differ right. on a lot of foreign policy stuff, right, right. but I don't see why, why would the Lieutenant governor of Illinois have to like have, why would they think that we have to have unconditional support for Israel? Who cares? It's the Lieutenant governor of Illinois and this kicked him from the, the ticket and oh. sort of imploded his campaign. It came down to that lesser Kennedy versus uh, Pritzker. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. And Bobby Kennedy's son ran in that race too, right? Was he his son? I thought Christopher I thought, Kennedy. Yes. Oh, that's his son. Yeah. Oh wow. I thought it was a nephew for some reason. He's the son. I, I know yeah. him a little bit, very little. But um, well, thirteen kids, you know, Robert. Kennedy. Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah, I remember I was in prison. I knew that it was JB and Robert Kennedy's son. Yeah. And um, I was I, I was actually for JB, you know, just yeah. on a personal level, just because I knew him better and liked him. Yeah. But. On the other hand, there was a part of me that felt the nostalgia for Robert Kennedy because of giving his life for his country the way he did. 42 years old, he was killed yeah. the uh, 6th of June, yeah, 68. You and I have had a discussion about we, it. Yeah, we disagree on this. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you, after this is done, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give me your address. I'm sending you sure. a book on this. Good. There's, I think. I'm open. I, 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 yeah, I think you have an open mind. Yeah. I think. Yeah, our friends uh, True and On they did an amazing episode with the author uh, Lisa Pease uh, on the assassination of RFK. But yeah, it and is. there's credible evidence to think that Sirhan Sirhan was not the shooter. Yes, interesting. Well, Kennedy was shot in the back. Okay. Yeah, and Sirhan from the front. The amount of uh, bullet holes do not match the amount of shots that Sirhan's gun could hold. A million things. Yeah, but, I, yeah. I'd be happy to look at that. Look, in view of what's happened to me with the federal government. All yeah. things are possible, you know? There you go. Who knows? Could have been a CIA yet, who knows? Yeah. Yeah, see, that kind of stuff I would dismiss completely before what happened to me. Now, it's all very plausible to me, including President Kennedy, JFK's yeah. assassination. You mentioned Nixon a while ago. I like them all from that era. Isn't that funny? Not all of them, but Nixon I like because he came from you know, his humble origins like I did. Yeah. You know, and he worked his way up, and he yeah. had a lot of ups and downs, and he was, you know, kind of a character that 
style of his, and uh, but he never quit, right? Yeah. The Kennedys, I love the Kennedys too, and yet they were, you know, JFK and Nixon ran against each other in 1960, and Bobby Kennedy was in a good position potentially to win that Democratic nomination in Chicago in 68, mm-hmm. up against the machine of the Democrat Party, yeah. Johnson and Humphrey was the ultimate. That was still going to be a tough battle for RFK, but I think he would have gotten it. And that would have been Bobby Kennedy against Nixon in 68. That would have been a I think RFK would have absolutely won. I do too. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Ended up, I don't, Humphrey, I mean, I hate to say it, I do not think a Minnesotan will ever win the presidency. Minnesota, huh? I mean, I think in this era, I don't think it's going to happen. Why Why Minnesota? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's like Arizona. It's just one of those states that's cursed. Yeah. Well, (laughs) go water. I mean, Minnesota is a great state. I love it there. I went to school there. Great state. I do not think they will... They will get a president. Yeah. Well, Humphrey and Mondale didn't do it, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, McCain and Goldwater didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. I see. Some some places are just cursed in that aspect. All right. I, I am very interested in your tenure as governor, though, just to, okay. to rewind a bit. I mean, I think in your career, there are things that you know we would disagree on. Like, I would say the main thing that you and I would differ on, I would say, like your rock war vote. You're the only yeah. de- Illinois Democrat. Yes, let's talk about that. Well, a, do, you, do you regret that? Yes. They lied. These, they lied. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I want to talk about that. I, yeah. That in Afghanistan. And I'll tell you some story about, uh, two stories about Bernie Sanders. Because he was a congressman that when yeah, I was there. Yeah. And I remember when the Patriot Act passed, I remember seeing there was like one no vote. And I'm thinking, man, who, who would vote no on this? It was after 9-11. And yeah. Everything was just shocking and terrible. And it was Bernie Sanders. And I remember thinking, this guy's crazy. <laughs> well, he was right. Yeah. That was the wrong, he made the right vote and the rest of us made the wrong vote. Oh, he was yes on Afghanistan. It was Barbara Lee who was no on Afghanistan. Okay. I know, I don't, I'm talking about the Patriot Act. Oh, oh my yeah. mistake. Misheard gotcha. you. So he was yes on Afghanistan. Yeah, huh, Bernie? yeah. Well, what was he on Iraq? Was he no on Oh, Iraq? he was no on Iraq. Yeah. I'll tell you why. So I'm, I sat in the House Armed Services Committee and they all came before us. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all the top generals, CIA, classified briefings. Mm-hmm. And they all swore up and down Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. I remember vividly asking myself, can this be? Could they lie? Mm-hmm. I remember asking myself, if this is true, we have to go in there. But could they be lying? I remember asking myself, could they be lying? And I was still relatively junior in my experience there. I was in my third term as congressman, yeah. and I was gearing up to run for governor. And if I made a political vote in a tough Democratic primary, I'd have simply voted like every other Democrat. Not every, but like Bernie Sanders and others, I'd have voted no on Iraq. Yeah. Because that hurt me with liberal voters in, in, in Illinois. Yeah. But they were telling us they had them. And I felt like I've got to suck it up and make the hard vote. Yeah. But I wasn't going to completely trust them. So I said to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to watch what Hillary Clinton does, the, the junior senator from New York. Yeah. Because she would know, having been in the White House, Bill Clinton's wife, whether these people lie or not about yeah. something like this. And then when she voted for it, I felt like, she would know. They must be telling the truth, so I, so I voted for it. It was a very bad vote that she made and a very bad vote that I made. I can only say in my defense, in mitigation, I believed them, and they were lying. Yeah. And I've learned a lot of hard lessons about how the federal government and people in high places who we have great trust in, the military leaders, federal prosecutors, law enforcement, the public still trusts them mostly, right? Yeah. Well, you can't believe them all the time. They lie. And they yeah. lied to us then, and that's why I did that vote. And I, I, I'm i sorry about that because it was wrong. It was the wrong vote, and that was a wrong war. Very bad. Do you think we should have stayed out of Afghanistan? Okay. In the, I would say, 
go in, quickly do what you got to do after 9-11, mm-hmm. and then get out. I, I would still say that was get in and get out fast. You need an exit strategy, and they should have been out of there in a year or two. I mean, but I could be wrong about that too. Go ahead, Felix. The uh, you know we we did a deep dive in Afghanistan, and uh, the Taliban was ready to give Bin Laden up. We just seems as though we wanted to invade a place, but could be. I do have to say, my dad was the only adult that I knew personally. You know, I was a I was a little kid. He was the only adult I heard who was against invading Afghanistan. That was the only guy. I mean, everyone was. How about your dad? He yeah. W- yeah, no. Yeah. Well, he, he voted for Angela Davis at one point. My dad was very- Oh, he did, huh? Yeah. Chicago he, 7. Yeah, he he was very right about some things. He had some crazy ideas in some other places. He had this one idea I always thought was, like, fascinating. His idea was the way that you fix, you know, we are talking about get money out of politics. His idea for the presidency, and this is the only person I've ever heard who had this idea, and at the time- I thought, You're, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. He said uh, the, president sh- the presidency it should be one six-year term. Like in France, they have a six-year term. And then you're executed at the end of it. <laughs> Which is, you know, when I heard it when I was like 12, I was like, what? that would never, like, they would never do that. And yeah, they wouldn't. Now I hear it, and it's like, that's kind of a genius idea. I mean, it would, it would, it would keep, some people would never become president. Right. I think Biden still would have done it because, I mean, with Biden, it's like he's already like 80. I think he's always wanted to do this. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> like, I don't know. Obama probably wouldn't have done it. Oh, he wouldn't have done it. No, he's not taking that deal. Right. Interesting idea on your dad. He could have been right on Afghanistan. He, I could be, look at history tells us don't go in there. The yeah. British couldn't do it. The Russians was, couldn't do right. it. He was right. We couldn't do it. That was in the wake of 9-11 and yeah. we, under the pretense of chasing terrorists. I believe that too. Maybe that wasn't right. I'll tell you something else. How does Dick Cheney get away with Halliburton? Yeah. And they go to war in Iraq and destroy that country. And he's the vice president with probably, frankly, more of a, dis, you know, gravitas in terms of making that decision than yeah. Bush did. Okay. And then they, Halliburton goes in and gets all those billion dollar contracts to rebuild that country. And Cheney's part of that. It's unbelievable. Yeah. He'll never even be interviewed by the FBI about it. Right. No one will ever. Right. His daughter will be in Congress forever. We're, the worst part is these people do these things. Yes. We're stuck with them forever. Yes. We're right. not even free of them. John McCain's daughter is going to be in media for the rest of my life. You're not a fan of John McCain, huh? Oh, it's, it's awful, awful fake. man. You're right. He's a fake. Yeah. He put his name on a, I'll give you a story. Prescription drugs. Re-import, reimportation of prescription drugs. Huge he part. Was, yeah. Huge right? part of your platform. Yeah. I was the first governor in America in, in, in America in 2005 to defy the FDA and go to Canada and go get the same medicines made by the same companies, mm-hmm. only be able to bring them back in and then provide them to our seniors and people who are living on fixed incomes, poor people, get them for half the price. And frankly, anybody else, right? Yes. And then three other governors followed me, and that was it. I couldn't get anybody else. So I was the only governor with three others after I did it. And I remember saying this to, at the press, well, you're defining the FDA. Well, what would you say to them? I said, if they don't like it, come and arrest me. Well, three years later, they came and got me. Not the FDA, <laughs> FDA but right? Yeah. Well, anyway, he was, and Rahm Emanuel came to me with this. He was the congressman there, and my, he succeeded me in Congress. Yeah. He came to me with this idea, and I thought it was a great idea. And uh, because it's better than just being a lawmaker where you put your name on bills, but nothing happens. Yeah. And we're actually doing something, right? Well, McCain and Ted Kennedy- were the co-sponsors of that reimportation of prescription drug bill. And I had a chance to go visit Senator Kennedy, who I really liked. 
was actually choked up in his office when I met with him because I'd look around his room and I in, in, in his Senate office and he had this these little trinkets, you know, they call that uh, bric-a-brac or something. I think they call it right, like PT one hundred and nine. Is oh yeah, 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 brother. yeah, yeah. They had he had these little things around the office about his brothers, you know, so historic figures. He seemed very genuine about trying to get something done on that. And then I went and saw McCain. He was the co-sponsor. They're friendly enough, but there was no follow-through. Yeah. Typical congressman, senator, who put their names on things. Dick Durbin's one of these. Yeah, that absolutely. Guy, Triple D, duplicitous Dick Durbin. They put their names on all kinds of stuff with no intention of trying to pass anything, just so they can go to different constituency groups and say, I'm trying to get this done. It's a It's fake. And it's, uh, it's, it's discouraging. And McCain seemed to be like the best of all the people, all of them doing that. He had this patina of being independent and uh, somewhat of a reformer. And the a maverick. Guy. Right. It was, I, I think it was all phony. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he voted with it for all the maverick palavers. He, he voted with that party almost entirely. Like, oh, he's a, he, him and Trump don't get along. He's such a better guy than Trump. He votes for Trump's, the tax cut. Like he happily votes for that. He goes against him a few times, but votes for all his judges because he's a member of that party. He's, yeah. he's part of that system. Yeah, he's and as much world, of a swamp creature as anyone else. You just said it. And it's the swamp creature stuff. Yeah. And the, their, their ideas and their ideology is shaped by all those people in that swamp in Washington inside the Beltway. And, you know, he probably never even thought about that issue until someone came up to him and said, this, this will look good, like you're taking on the, the pharmaceutical industry, but don't pass it. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what they do. They they get on the bills, but they don't pass it. Absolutely. Right? And they go back and say, I'm taking on this pharmaceutical industry. It's so fucking fake. There's Sorry. a Medicare, no, at, no problem. There's a fucking Medicare for all bill that they're probably going to do every three years there you for the go. rest of my life that will never pass. It's <laughs> right, right. No, yeah. Just so, yeah. Right. When they, when they think they're going to face a tough primary, look, I voted for it. Right. Look, I was on the amendment. This thing that I knew would never pass. You know, if they played the rest of the FBI tapes, which they won't do, because the truth is on those FBI tapes with me on there, they only play 2%. They took the, you know, the ugliest conversations out of context. Even by themselves, those, won't go, those aren't crimes. This is fucking gold and I'm not giving it up for nothing. How's that a crime? Unless you got something afterwards right. that has me say it, right? Anyway, if you heard the whole thing, you'd hear me. I'm the verge of making Lisa Madigan the senator, who I don't like, fake. Really don't like her father. We're fighting all the time. But if he's willing to give me a expansion of health care, cover everybody we didn't quite get. Because in Illinois, we gave more health care to more people than any state in America. Every child got access to affordable health care. I got a whole bunch of their parents, up to like 600,000 of their parents on the rolls. You changed, yeah, you made the eligibility. You took it from something like the the threshold was like $17,000 a year for a family to get on that to 83000 Right. No, you got hundreds of thousands right. of people on it. There were still like a million left that didn't have it. And I, the last deal was, I'll make your daughter the senator. Give me that, okay? Yeah. Because the Senate was going to do it. Emil Jones, the Democrats were there. We had Democrats controlled everything. We could have got everything done. But Madigan was blocking it, working with the, with the Republicans. Yeah. So I'll make your daughter senator. I want that. Everybody. Then uh, a big public works infrastructure bill with uh, like $1.5 billion of economic investment for low-income communities, which is largely black neighborhoods. Yeah. Okay. South and West Side, Southwest Suburbs. Places like Englewood. Englewood, East St. Louis, okay? Mm-hmm. Some of the areas in Decatur and Springfield, but largely South and West Sides of the city yeah. of Chicago, East St. Louis, and some of the suburban uh, areas now that are poor. Okay? I want that. And then I want a written memorandum of understanding. We're going to do it 
without raising taxes on people because I had a bunch of ways to do it, including taxing the casinos and a bunch yeah. of other stuff, right? Yeah. Taking a vice and turning it into a virtue, right? And, uh, and Rahm Emanuel was going to be the go-between to make the deal because I couldn't trust Madigan. Mm-hmm. And he said he would ask Obama for permission. And then if he did that, I was going to make that happen. And that was the day before I got arrested. And they heard all of that stuff and arrested me the very next day to keep it from happening. Because I was going to do that. And, would, and we'd have been able to have be the only state in America where everybody had access to affordable health care, private insurance through the public option as well. Would have, yeah. would have been a public option. That's how we were doing it. It was both. And uh, it's just one of those... Anyway, I, I bring that up just because you said Medicare for all. They don't want, you know what? That's the other thing. And the Pat Quinn was one of these guys. Yeah. It's all for, for all of those things, but never wanted to pass any of them. You know why? Because then you don't have the issue anymore. Right. So they just, and they, they'd rather blame it on somebody else rather than actually solve the problem. And that's what most politicians do. Not all of them, but most of them. And it's very discouraging and disillusioning. Every Democrat I see run on a federal cycle every time. I see the same shit every time. Tell me. We're all about we're all about uh increasing access to affordable health care. We're gonna we're gonna bring premiums back down because yeah. they're already higher than they were yeah. when Obamacare, when ACA was passing the law. That was nothing more than a giveaway to insurance companies. No and question. Yeah. Obama did it. He, he frankly he with that talent that he had and he had He the, could have passed something. He could have he gotten, had sixty votes. Yes. I'm so sick of the bullshit about that. Oh, he didn't have a magic wand. He had the greatest supermajority I've seen a Democrat have in my lifetime. They couldn't get they couldn't even get the public option. I know. It's yeah. sickening. They didn't want it. But you have to know Obama like I do. I'm not surprised by it. Yeah. But his moment was right there in that honeymoon period. Right when my world is crashing down, when they arrest me and Bernie Madoff. Remember that? Of course. Bernie Madoff and I are the two biggest assholes in the world. That's how we were portrayed, <laughs> yeah. okay? Yeah. He's a fucking heck of a lot worse than me. No one got hurt in mine, okay? But as that's happening, Obama is a demigod. Yeah. First black president with all that talent that he has, okay? He's got a Democrat House and a Democrat Senate, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Right? No, he had 60 votes yes. in the Senate. Yes, and he had that honeymoon yeah. that Trump never got. He had like, it was close to 80% approval rating. Probably something we'll never see ever again. And the bully pulpit and his skill to talk. Yeah. How does he not get it done? You know why? He didn't really, doesn't care that much. He didn't want it. Exactly. No one wanted exactly. it. Emmanuel didn't want it. Emmanuel was so quick to cut off the public option. He was you know so why? Insurance companies. Yeah. Yeah, campaign that's contributions. The, I mean, yeah, that's footing his lifestyle. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's really, dis- it's very disheartening. Yeah. But that is, you know, when I said you were ahead of your time, what you did with children's health care. That was, I mean, you did that in what? That was 2005. Yeah. So, yeah. No. I had to make a deal on that. You know how I got that? I had to make a deal with Madigan and Emil Jones. Madigan's Democratic uh, speaker. Yeah. and uh, Jones is one of the few people who is like kind of always on your side. He was, and yeah. he's great and a good person. Old school Chicago machine guy, you yeah. know, south side, black, and common sense, yeah. and a good person. But they were both concerned, and, they, and I get this, because here's the deal. We, you know, we... we Lament because there's so many missed opportunities. Obama, with all that skill, just tinkered at the edges. Didn't want yeah. to invest political capital to get things done to help real people. I mean, Chicago and the south side of Chicago, where he comes from as a supposed community activist, mm-hmm. as president, he could have done so much for the inner cities with the ability that he has and the Democrats in control if they really wanted to. Yeah. See, I, I suspect they don't really want to. They don't want to lose the issue. Yeah. They like to keep that division, you know? But- 
we were talking about Obama. The the deal that you made to get children's health care, to get That's it. So it. yeah, every well, child. So it's would October, be. 2005. We can get all kids and I'll start with all kids. And I'm going to go and try to get their parents afterwards, which we started, we did, we were doing. Yeah. And I want, you know, the Democrats are going to be hard pressed to vote against that if you get a vote, but yeah, Madigan more so than Emil Jones by himself has the power to simply not call a bill. Mm-hmm. And that's how he kills stuff by himself. Yeah. And so the two of them had to see me at the governor's mansion. It was led by Madigan. And and it was all legit. And it was, it, because poli- that's the point I wanted to make. Politics and government, Mayor Daly's father used to say it, the first Mayor Daly, good politics is good government, good government is good politics. Politics is a means to govern. You got to make deals and compromise. You got to understand the other person and what they want to do. If, it, if, your, if your convictions are deep enough and you're willing to fight and invest a little bit more, even some of yourself into it, including your approval ratings, I take great pride in the fact that my approval ratings were never that high because I put in political capital into stuff. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to do that, you can still move the ball forward 75% of the way instead of 100% of the way. And that's 75% better than you'd otherwise get, right? Yeah. You're helping a lot of people. Well, they came to me because their members were hearing from their constituents in the downstate areas that the doctors were saying that if they don't pass caps on medical malpractice damages, the doctors are going to leave Illinois. They're going to move to Missouri or Kentucky or Indiana, okay? And little old ladies will go into these state reps and state senators' offices and saying, my doctor, because the doctors were organized and they were going directly to the patients, they were going right to their elected officials, you need to, we're going to, we're going to vote for your opponent. And the majorities that the Democrats held at that time were based upon Democrats winning seats downstate. Yeah. Okay? And we had to hold those or else we're going to lose our at least one majority, the Senate, and possibly even the House. Madigan's always worried about that. And so they wanted to stick it to the trial lawyers who had given all of us Democrats a lot of money. Madigan, millions of dollars over the years. He was their guy to protect the trial lawyers and the, the medical malpractice caps from go, going into effect. Okay? Madigan's politics shifted when I became the governor trial lawyers contributed something like a million, million and a half dollars to my campaign. And so they didn't need Madigan as much because they had me as far as they were concerned. Emil Jones less so, but their members were coming to them saying, we got to stick it to the, we got to sell out the lawyers basically and be with the doctors on this. Um, This is just a crass political way of uh, explaining it, right? Because otherwise these people are going to vote us out of office. And they were so concerned that Madigan and Jones saw it and said that we could lose our majorities. So they came to me and basically said, if you don't join us, because we're going to stick it to the lawyers and pass caps on damages in spite of all the money they've given them in their campaigns. But if you vetoed this, you're screwing us. And these people, oh, we're going to lose our seats yeah. and our majorities. So you got to make a deal with us right now. Will you sign this into law? Which means you got to stick it to those trial lawyers who gave you over a million dollars in campaign contributions, right? If you want your all kids bill. Yeah. That was basically what the deal was, right? I mean, you know how much time I spent to figure that one out, whether I was prepared to make that deal? Like three seconds, right? The morality of it was so clear to me. Sorry, trial lawyers, you're going to get fucked here because we can do something great for all these kids. They can go see a doctor, and be healthy and grow up and live good lives. It was a no-brainer. And do I, am I blaming the, the two of them for making that deal with me because it was kind of a cynical political move? No. They were smart politically, and it was the right thing to do because they had to protect their majorities. So those are the kinds of things you have to balance when you're in a position of leadership. Um, 
And needless to say, those lawyers were very angry and disappointed at Madigan and me, less so Jones, because they were less helpful to Jones. Mm-hmm. But they were really, they felt betrayed by the two of us. And I tried to explain to them, it was a choice between, I, was, I didn't choose this one, they came to me. And I gotta tell you, I, I, the kids' health care overwhelmingly trumps your issue. Yeah. It was easy to make that decision and, and screw those guys. I will say though, that like the medical malpractice thing, I mean, I imagine, I'm not gonna pretend to be an expert on what, what the economics of like being a family doctor downstate are, but generally, you know, this is, we've seen a lot in red states, places that have a strong Republican state legislature. We've seen it like in Texas, they passed a crazy tort reform bill in the 90s. And with Republicans, it was, the reasoning was, oh, why are healthcare costs so high? Oh, it's because of, uh, it's because right. of medical class action. And like, I, I think there are far more pitiable people in America than, you know, class action trial lawyers for sure. I also think it is a way that people can get some form of redress. Normal people can get some form of redress against doctors. That said, I mean, like, it, I always found that, like, you know, with you, you felt like you had to do what you had to do. You know, if this was the way to pass it, absolutely. Yeah, I get you. But Can I explain that real quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what you're saying is absolutely right. The trial lawyers are, are on the right side of that issue, I believe, right. firmly. The idea that you put a cap on a medical mal- a mistake a doctor makes— that causes great harm to a patient, oftentimes children. Yeah. And all that family can get is $250,000. Yeah, for a lifetime of a care. A lifetime, right, is very wrong. Yeah. So their cause, I think, was very just and correct, and I was always for it and happily for it. Very natural. But see, this is what happens with governing, you see. Yeah. You, you, Clinton used to say this, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right. Do I just say... No, and don't do that for all those kids. That was the choice, you see. Right, so to you, it's like this thing that you're not, you're right, you're not against medical class action. No. But at the same time, you're like, well, it's that or enrolling all kids. Well, that's it. Yeah. So you win the big war to get all the kids enrolled yeah. and you get healthcare for all the kids then in 2005. We'll live to fight another day with the trial lawyers <laughs> yeah, next yeah. year. I mean, it's not like that's dead forever because yeah. you go, you can come back and revisit that issue. And the tri- like, I mean, it's like most things with healthcare in America. The trial lawyer, even just having trial lawyers with uncapped, uh, with uncapped court winnings, it's not even really a good solution. I mean, you know, on one, okay, say that it's all tort reform is declared unconstitutional. You can do this everywhere. You can even do this in Texas. That's, I mean, that's good for families where a doctor fucks up, where, you know, whatever. It's not really, for most people, it's not It's not going to really bring their costs down. I don't think it's necessarily going to immediately make doctors better. It's not going to bring our infant mortality rate down, which is pitiful, pitiful, like just awful for a country as rich as ours. Right, right. But, uh, you know, the where I'm at with most of this, with healthcare. And I'm, I'm interested in what you think, you know, I've, I've seen these things, the rate of healthcare administrators, hospital administrators, people who work in billing, people who's, you know, you don't want to be unfair to people, but I'm sorry, that is an extortion job. Uh, they have grown at 20 times the rate that the amount of care workers we have, doctors, nurses, physicians, assistants, the people we have a shortage of, Mm. I think at this point, like Medicare for all isn't really quite good enough. I think 
we would need something like the NHS. I think we would need to nationalize the entire thing. I think if you wanted like, you know, cosmetic procedures that could be private, of course, but I, I think our hospital and care systems, they've lost the right to be operated for profit or even operated by a non-state institution. You know that I hear what you're saying and I, I've been gone for so long that I haven't been able to keep up on some of the new developments, like what you're talking about, about this sort of bureaucracy that exists yeah. now in the administration of healthcare and the delivery system. Um, I, I can tell you what I believe. I believe, first of all, that healthcare is a fundamental human right. right. I know a lot of Republicans don't believe that. Madigan didn't believe that when Absolutely I would press him. Not. He never did. And a lot of people who are well-intentioned, who honestly are thoughtful people, don't think that. I believe it's... It is for many reasons. I believe it's rooted in, frankly, in the scripture, yeah. scriptures, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you, not to mention a whole bunch of other places. You can find the, the need to look after your neighbor and make sure your neighbor can have a chance to be healthy, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's in the Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Right? I don't inalienable right of all of us to pursue happiness. You can't be happy if you're not well. And yeah. so I, I, I interpret that to mean Everybody should get health care. I believe also that we know that if the government doesn't get involved, they're going to be a lot of people without it. Yeah. And it's just the marketplace alone won't address that. Yeah. So I, I feel like there's a role for government to play in, in it. Abraham Lincoln said the proper role of government is to do for a community of people, to do for people what they can't do by themselves individually or can't do so well by themselves yeah. individually. And so that's, a, I think, an appropriate use of government that Lincoln would agree with. Yeah, I think the disagreements are as to the, not so much the ends of mm-hmm. those of us who all believe that healthcare should be available to everybody, but the means how to get there. And I know from my own experience in prison, for example, that that example of government-run healthcare is a very bad one. I saw guys die in prison yeah. who just weren't getting the care that they were they should have gotten. Cancers that could have been stopped earlier, but you know a year or two before, but they were just never getting the treatment they needed. And then there they are shriveled up guys who a year and a half ago, you were working out with in the gym, dying. I saw this. And I saw this sort of bureaucratic almost indifference to people. They were just kind of like numbers. So I'm not saying that the government by its, you know, is, is altogether wrong. Yeah. I just feel like there's, I'm not sure what the, quite a, the answer is. I, mean, I know that in Illinois, we could do public option by leaving private insurance, yeah. insurance alone. I wasn't trying to completely change everything. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to fill gaps. Yeah. So- but if I was ever in a place of power, that'd be my big priority, actually, like it was when I was governor of health care. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, though, people wither and die and are <clears> lost <throat> in bureaucracy when they're free, you know, in the private system. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, Unfor- it, like, Unfortunately, it's hard to see a path forward for it. It's a hard, hard issue. Yeah. I think, the, I think most people would agree with us that everybody should have it. Yeah. And that they have a right to it. I think the hard part is to figure out exactly the right way to get there. Yeah. And I don't have the answers either. I can only tell you in Illinois— I didn't have to, I wasn't eliminating the existing system. I was working within the existing system, yeah. as I said, to pretty much get everybody who was caught in in the gaps and try to get them something. And the public option was extremely helpful to us in achieving that. Yeah. Well, I don't, I mean, like a governor is sort of limited in what they can do. Like a governor can't quite get rid of private insurance in their state. I would love it if they could, but like, you know, they can't, but like, you know, a state like California because I know, you know, Illinois faced some budget shortfall issues. Like right when you got in there, there was a budget deficit and you actually, you know, I don't want to fully get into that, but yeah. like 
states like California that could actually have uh, even higher tax receipts than they than they do now, they could if they wanted to cover everyone. But you know they they won't. They'll never do that. But they can, they cannot. I do not think there is a way for them to get rid of private insurance in the state. I think that the powerful lobbyists and the influence of the insurance industry is why Obama basically gave them what they wanted. Yeah. I mean, basically, his health care program, I think the biggest winner was the insurance companies. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's ironic. Yeah. The final thing I want to talk to you mm-hmm. about, and we, we touched on it a little bit. You were talking about how you, the final thing you're working on. You briefly touched on how you wanted a big infrastructure bill. Yeah. This was, so while while you were away, while uh, Obama was in power, really, we saw communities like in the south side of Chicago, East St. Louis that you mentioned. It's specific Illinois, but it, it's happened in a lot of places in America. The same thing happens. You see the same patterns. Uh a neighborhood or oftentimes like a federal housing project or state housing project will be destroyed. The thinking is it will get rid of crime. Uh, of Obviously crime doesn't just disappear. Low income people go to a different area. It's typically an area that was obliterated by deindustrialization, a place where, you know, families used to be able to have like okay paying middle-class jobs. They yeah. no longer can. Fort Heights. Okay. Yeah. Chicago. Families have been yeah. destroyed. Then in the 90s, in the 2000s, you saw the leadership of gangs decapitated. And, right. you know, these gangs become leadership leaderless. Uh, people are in a hopeless situation. Some right. of these places, they look, you know, people who don't follow this, they would not think it's America. And for all intents and purposes, they're not people, the kids growing up here, they're not living in the same reality that we're living in. It, it's, they are abandoned places. And we've seen them abandoned in red states. We've seen them abandoned in blue states. We see them in abandoned states that have Democratic supermajorities. And Englewood in particular, right. very interesting to me because it's it is an American war zone. It and is. What if you if you could do any like if you're you're back in there, you have the powers of governor. Yeah. How how would you even begin to fix that? How would you even begin to give people hope? Right. That's great, which is a great question. So real quick, and I, I uh, just want to say this on the record so I get this out there. I think what America needs is more, more than two parties. Yeah. I think that we can govern more effectively if we had several parties, mm-hmm. not just three either. And I don't know how you change this, but if you do, do it more along the model of what they have in, I don't know, Great Britain or some other places, but where you can build governing coalitions because our politics is so divided. And it's, so, it's so divided, uh, and our parties are so divided in that the – both sides of the political spectrum are so dominant now within the, each party that there's you, you can't even think about compromising because you'll lose the support that you have from your hardcore left-wing base or your hardcore right-wing base. And now one of the developments of Obama, which I thought was very helpful, but now I don't think was. It just comp- it, it creates another complication. Was One of the things Obama did when he ran in 2008 and before that in 2007 was he attracted such a great following, especially in the black community, that he was getting all of these small dollar donations from everyday people who are now putting skin in the game. Yeah. And that began this new process that you see now from Bernie Sanders, you know, uh, what's her name? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah. Right? They're able to raise a lot of money through small dollar donations. On the other side of the spectrum, that's what the Republicans, Trump 
was doing that. Yeah, Crazy, right? more small small dollar donations than any Democratic president or Republican presidential candidate beforehand. Yeah, thank yeah. So that's the populism of politics, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it makes it harder to govern because Congresswoman uh, Cortez can't is going to upset her fundraising base if she makes a deal with. Marjorie Taylor Greene has something <laughs> yeah. where they could find common ground. I don't know what they could find common maybe ground. Maybe they on. can't. Yeah. My point is, and maybe that's impossible. I think yeah. it probably is. And that's yeah. why having other parties in the mix, you know, a left of a center yeah. left party or a center right or whatever, and all in the mix where you're governing, maybe we'll get better results for people. Now to answer your question about what is really troubling to me. Yeah. I've had a chance since I've been home over the last uh, six weeks, I've, I've, I've had a chance to get back in the black community, which has always been a community that I felt a real affinity for. And I've been able to go to black churches and, uh, you know, speak briefly and just go to the service. I even to my family, my daughters and my wife, Patty, and I went to Reverend, uh, Pastor Thurston's church, just a little bit south in Chatham of Englewood, the neighborhood you're talking about. Yeah. And it's, just, it's it, I just want, I go back because I felt a real sense of gratitude that even in the worst of times, See, they understand you can't always believe what the police say, right? And therefore the cops and the prosecutors and all the rest. And so that was the one place when the shit hit the fan in my life where I, you know, I wasn't a pariah, where you'd actually, we actually felt some warmth and some love. And so finally I get back after all those years and, and have been really grateful for the chance to go back and just express my gratitude. But when you take the drive from the north side where I live to the south side, especially now with all the terrible violence that's going on, because those are gang wars. It's like you're leaving. Two, it's a tale of two cities. It's mm-hmm. two different places. And there's vibrancy and there's energy and there's people jogging on the streets and businesses are open. And in spite of COVID, things are doing pretty well. People are out and about. Yeah, yeah. Then you cross into the South Side and it's dead. Right. Everybody's inside partly because they're afraid, right? It's quiet. Not a lot of businesses. It's just a very different world. Right before I got arrested, we were talking about doing something to address this issue of food deserts where yeah. in the black communities, there's no fresh fruit places where you can't buy produce and fresh fruit. fruit. Yeah. Why is that? So we tried to do some things along those lines then I got taken out. But, and I, every time I'm there and I, then I come back from the South side to the North side, it's like you've left a place that's asleep to a place that's wide awake and vibrant. And it's not right. It's wrong. And so what's the answer? How do you address that? I mean, there's just a lot of stuff. There's a lot of things that I think need to be done to, to address the, the issues of, uh, of that kind of poverty and despair, hopelessness. And, you know, we talk about what the church means in the black community. It's a place where hope, they, people go on Sundays to get hope or they go on Wednesday nights to get hope in a place that otherwise desolate and, and, and feeling of no opportunity. I don't have all the answers. I feel like, you know, we have a public school education system that's a monopoly and is, is afraid of change and reform. I was very supportive of the teachers union when I was governor and supportive of uh, the uh, education establishment, partly because that was my political alliance with Senator Jones. I would have liked to try to push them a little bit with some ideas of you know, school choice, pilots, maybe vouchers or stuff like that to take a look at, but you couldn't do it. Um, I, I feel like there needs to be, you know, a reevaluation of how the, how the education system works. There's no economic opportunity. There's a real sense that, you know, you can't make it in America. 
Uh, there's the prevalence of drugs. That's the one place where you can get ahead. And so the, the, the social challenges there are very significant. And I don't have all, I don't have a lot of the answers except it should become a, it may be the number one priority of those in government is to try to rectify that so that everybody can live in what Dr. King called the beloved community, an opportunity to get ahead for everybody. I do believe in the American dream. I do believe in opportunity and getting ahead. I don't believe in socialism. I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a failure and steals freedom. But how do you bring to one part of our community that feeling that you can make it in America and your hard work will pay off? It doesn't exist there. And there's reasons, very good reasons why, because it's been a community that's been historically screwed in in the United States and and they know it, they feel it. And they don't trust, I think, a lot of us. What's what's your sense? I mean, I... It's it would take a lot of work because yeah it, it's these specific areas completely abandoned bereft of any social services but I I mean you were saying yeah they don't feel like there's a way to advance and they're right there really right. is like just across the board there's very low social mobility in America compared to how it used to be but right. especially there right especially there I I think you would need to see some type of industry there maybe yeah you would i think we would really need to rethink the way that we do policing a lot completely revamp it uh and then i i think i mean i i think we probably disagree on uh on uh charter schools and stuff i think i mean i really think the problem kind of even goes beyond education i think everyone obviously deserves a uh a K through college education, if that's what they want. But I think looking at these places, it goes beyond just solely what the schools are like. But I I mean, unfortunately, this is another one of those problems that I think we look at it now, it is partly an intentional policy and partly a consequence of how we do things. You say intentional, tell me what you mean. I think that a lot of places, the conscious thought with a lot of people is like, well, like, fuck this place. This let's all crime, all m- the vast majority of violent crime, yeah. fatal crime, the vast majority of murders are going to happen in this one part right. of the city right. that no one ever thinks about. Right. It might as well be. I mean, I use the analogy to our foreign wars a lot because we also don't like thinking about those either. Good and analogy. This is a place that's within our borders. Right. That we also similarly don't think about. And right. we think about the people that live there as though they are foreigners. Right. Absolutely right, what you just said. And there's a cynical element of it. I hate to say it. Look, the country club corporate Republican Party of Mitt Romney and McCain and Bush and Cheney, they, they don't even pretend to care about the black community and, what, and the plight and the lack of opportunity and the despair that exists and the lack of energy in the in those economic energy. They don't even pretend to care. And they almost and their politics was always rooted on sort of like an us versus them, you know, be afraid of them. Right. You know, it's real cynical. Today's Democrat Party, frankly, and the Democrat Party that I grew up in here in Chicago, real cynical politics too. Yeah. Their feeling is, yeah, we'll we'll do something for them. We'll give a lot of lip service. We'll talk about how unfair things are, and we'll have some black people in some high prominent places to look like we are doing things, but we're not going to, and we're going to do some stuff and we're going to provide some investments there to help people on a human, you know, human resource kind of way. All that's what they do, but they got to stay there. We don't want them coming into the white neighborhoods or we'll, the white people will chase, we'll chase them out. 
Yeah. And so what you have with Democratic administrations is really interesting. The two dailies. And I, and I like Mayor Daly, the second one that I knew. Mm-hmm. His father was like a, you know, like a legendary figure, you know, when I was growing up in Chicago, yeah. you know, he was like the king, you know? Yeah. I mean, you grew up in Chicago when I was growing up. I mean, we know, I know the day Elvis died, August 16th, 1977, Mayor JFK, November 22nd, 1963, I talked about Bobby Kennedy, and December 20th, 1976, 76, when the first Mayor Daley died. But here's what they did with Democratic presidents, both of them, to deal with the race issue and, and to maintain a city of segregation, because yes. it, it is. This is an incredibly segregated Very city. Very much so. Maybe the most in America. By design, yeah. they could have addressed that, and they didn't, and, yeah. and don't want to because it's politically very hard. Yeah. So the first mayor daily gets federal dollars from the Democratic President Johnson. Yeah. To expand the Kennedy, the Dan Ryan Expressway. And he makes sure he gets it where he wants it because he doesn't have a natural barrier like the Mississippi River to keep the blacks out of Bridgeport. Yeah. So they put the Dan Ryan Expressway there. My dad would point that out to me. He's right. drive by it, yeah. And that was not by accident. That was directed by Mayor Daley I with the Democratic President Lyndon Johnson who did so much for civil rights in terms of the bill, mm-hmm. civil rights law, right? But this kind of stuff is all goes on in de- democratic politics. So it, they do some and enough to say they've done something, but not what they could do. So yeah. they d- divide it. Now dailies, and then they bring up public housing during that period, okay, in the 60s, right? Put poor people up high, which turned out to be a terrible experiment, a very bad thing, bad quality of life for poor black people. Cabrini Green, Robert Taylor Holmes. I used yeah. to work over there. Robert Taylor Holmes when I was a young prosecutor, yeah. Yeah. 50% of Wentworth. So I know that, right? So what do they do with that? They tear that down under the Clinton administration and the second mayor daily. And he's working with Clinton and making sure that that comes down in other places too, but in Chicago. And the policies are such that those black families that have been dispossessed, those poor families, don't stay in the city, but they move to the south suburbs or the west yeah. suburbs, right? They go to Markham and they go to well, Ford Heights, and, uh, you know, that whole South suburban area, right? Yes. No longer Daly's political challenge. It becomes the suburban issue. And Daly City becomes more gentrified, yuppified, yeah. white, right? Yeah, no, the the CBOE becomes like the economic center of the city. It become We become like the financial hub of the Midwest. And it's talked about as the great success story of the Rust Belt. The things that happen to other places, we talk about it like we skirted it. Well, Everyone didn't skirt it. Didn't yeah. benefit everybody. Right. I like your idea of putting industry there. I like your idea, you know, instead of shipping jobs over to China and Mexico, yeah. why not do some sort of smart tax policy, encourage businesses like the Finkel Steel Company where my father used to work. Yeah. They're now on the south side. They're now just south of Englewood. Yeah. Over there in the area where the old U.S. steel plant used to be. Yeah. And they're actually looking to hire black people, the Finkel Steel Company. More of that. I think yeah. it would be helpful. Yeah, if there were union jobs and yeah, no, and everything great and small, like things like basic things, as you mentioned, that we don't even think about. Like we do not even think about like access to produce. Right. Things that just don't have it. Basic Still things don't. that, yeah, make it seem like they're, I mean, they're not, like people, if you live, you know, in Englewood or you live in any way, East St. Louis, yeah, you wouldn't feel like you're living in the same place as any, as anyone else. You're not. It's not the same place. Not the same place. And you know your point you said about how, well, it's like a foreign country and we don't really, we kind of know it's over there, but it's not, we don't see yeah. it. That That is absolutely right. And that too creates, I think, a lack of sympathy for the challenge to try to yeah. do something as a com- larger community to help. 
also for a lot of misunderstandings. And then it becomes ripe for, you know, the different people who like to use the race card for political reasons on both sides. Okay, and I, I think there are a lot of Democrats who like to use that all the time. They like to keep that situation. Mayor Washington, the first black mayor, called it plantation politics. I, I believe that very much exists today still with Democrats in big cities and, frankly, in Washington. And then you call the other side racists, and black people will accept that and believe that because they're getting screwed so bad. They, 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 it's real to them, and, and there is an element of it being real. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But I do believe there's a lot more well-meaning people that would like to try to be helpful if they honestly knew what the problems were and it wasn't invisible to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so it's invisible. Yeah. They don't know it. They don't see it. And uh, part of the challenge is how do, you, like, how do you educate the broader public to some of these problems? And then how do you articulate the need that, you know, the Black National Anthem is lift every voice, right? But if you lift up everybody, you're raising up. If you have to lift up people who are in poverty, if you lift them up, it lifts all of us up in some way or another. Frankly, from a business point of view, you've got more consumers, right? Well, yeah, that was the JFK thing, rising tide lifts all boats. Right. Right. Democratic Keynesianism, which, you know, they trot out sometimes when they really need it. Right. But um, I have noticed something you've, you've hearkened back to a lot in our conversation is the idea of division. And I, I feel like in some ways, like, you know, maybe at any any time in history, you could you could pick people out who are living then, and they'll say the same thing. We've never been more divided, and I think, you know, we did. I think there probably have been times. Well, yeah, how about we, the Civil War? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. But I mean, just generally, like politics are very polarized. Yes, and they're they're just basic things. Like I will admit, when the vaccine rolled out. I thought, of course, you're always going to get people who just are never going to, do not want to get it, are hesitant of it, will not trust it. I mean, there are always going to be anti-vaxxers. I did not expect it to be as many people as it was. I stupidly thought, because Trump made such a big deal about them developing it under his administration, because he got it, that it would be, more people would be like, yeah, okay, let's, we want to get out of this, like so many people have died, let's get it, and that unfortunately has not really happened for a lot of reasons. It's not just people who are categorically against vaccines, but uh, how, how would we begin to fix that? And you're from someone who's like, you've, you've come at this from all angles. You've lived an incredible life. Like, what do you think you've, you've engaged with pretty much every type of person in America. What do, how, how would you make it better? I talk with presidents and I live with murderers. Yeah. Right? Not a lot of people can say that, right? Yeah. Well, it's trust. People don't trust government, the media, social media, uh, institutions in the United States. Increasingly, I think more and more people are distrustful of the criminal justice system, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. And I think there's reasons why they don't trust a lot of these big institutions because they're not, because they have failed us, because they, they have been dishonest and haven't been caretakers of the truth like they should be. Yeah, It's all about immediate expediency, all about winning now and whatever it takes to win rather than, you know, some things are just so sacred that we don't go there. Like the cheapening of the impeachment process. You know, and maybe your listeners won't appreciate what I'm about to say about Trump, but I feel like that was cheapened against him. I've been impeached and removed and disqualified. I believe that was wrong. And most I was against listener, whether- Most of my listeners, like, don't, like, I don't think they really give a shit too much about, like, 
they weren't like frothing for Trump to be. I think they yeah. thought it was funny. Yeah. Like right. kind of like I did. I didn't really like. And it wasn't going to happen because the Republicans were staying with them. So maybe yeah. it wasn't such an immediate. Threat. They were never going to convict. Yeah. Well, the yeah. Republicans started this because they did this to Clinton. You see? Yeah. This is what these politicians and political parties do when you start going down a slippery slope and one thing leads to another and it becomes payback, payback. Now suddenly you got the situation where nothing is any is sacred anymore. So it's these things that, are, that used to be always considered fundamental constitutional rights, like free speech, yeah. not censorship, like privacy, not surveillance. Mm-hmm. These things are, have been eroded in the United States yeah. and people are seeing it and they don't trust it. So I think it really comes down to trust. And, and I think, you know, when, you, when a leader asks people during a pandemic to make sacrifices, yeah, okay, because they have to, because it, like I look at Pritzker, I see what, about how he's handled things in Illinois and I ask myself, because I had the job, how would I have handled this if this happened under my watch? Yeah. Almost everything he's done, I think, I probably would have done the same thing. The shutdowns and things like that, the masks. Yeah. I'm vaccinated. I believe people should get vaccinated. But I do understand why they don't trust what they're being told. Yeah. And I and I, it goes down, I think, to this, you know, it's been a long litany of f- fakeness and dishonesty to the public. And it is shocking that so many people feel like they're being lied to by the government on something as fundamental as vaccinations. It wasn't like that in the, in the seventies or, or I should just say the 1950s when, you know, everybody was required to get yeah. TB Everyone shots. got TB, polio, right? everything. Yeah. yeah. You're right. And polio shots. Yeah. What is this that I have on there? That's a polio thing. Is that polio? I think so. I'm not right? quite or sure. T- right. I think, or no, that's TB. That's, that's TB. TB. Yeah. Right. Okay. So like in 1956, the government enlisted Elvis yeah. to do a public relations uh, public service announced pro- getting vaccinated. Yeah. Okay. Because there was some hesitancy, but nowhere near what it is today because yeah. they trusted, we trusted things more back then. We don't now and, and we're right not to. So I know what you mean. It's really frustrating. I think the pandemic could have been far less deadly and maybe over sooner Yeah. Uh, if people would have been more trustworthy. But here again, you get these leaders who ask for sacrifice, but they don't share in the sacrifice. They tell us in as leaders that you should do a certain thing, but they don't do it themselves. Right. And that's a big mistake. You know, when that governor of California goes out to that French restaurant, it's a small thing on its, on its own, but in a position like that, in a worldwide pandemic like that, you've got to be mindful of those things. Yeah. The optics of that and how that's going to be twisted by your political opponents and used to undermine the public confidence and trust. Yeah. We saw that in New York with some of the stuff that was happening with Cuomo and deal and all of that. I think that causes more problems and harm and I think that's part why these anti-vaxxers and these these anti-mask people are so are so uh, distrustful. Yeah, I think with some people, like no matter who told them, it would be like, you know, like with last year. No, I don't want to fucking stay home. No, I'm gonna fly home and see people during Thanksgiving. No, I, I'm not gonna wear the mask on a fucking plane. Yeah. Uh, now or like now, like no, you're telling me to get the vaccine. On there, some people who are just gonna be like. It's like they have oppositional defiance disorder. You're yeah. always going to get people like right. that. You should always account for people like that. But I think for like broadly for, because so many people haven't gotten it. I think that it's a mistake that people make just broadly referring to anti-vaxxers as if like they all think it's fake. I mean, I don't know. Like we, for better or for worse, we did make Fauci sort of the face of like what we wanted the response to be. Like people on the liberal side felt that. 
I I mean, this sounds kind of ridiculous to say, but I think it was a mistake to like make doctors the face of it. Because I bet, look, I bet doctors like, yeah, if you poll people, I bet they poll like decent, but they poll okay. I bet people are generally favorable of them. I, I never think polls tell the whole story. Right. People's mental association of a doctor, how mo- most younger, most Americans under like 40 don't have a primary care physician, a family doctor that they see like even once a year. They don't, even if they do have a family doctor, they never see them. When you say doctor to most people, when you show them a doctor, what they think of is the guy they see every three or four years who like tells them that they're fat. (laughs) Like he's like, okay, well do you like, you're fucked up for this reason because you didn't see me the year before. And Oh, also that's like $700 or it's the, the guy you go, you go under, Oh yeah, now you owe seventy five thousand yeah. dollars. Oh, your wife gave birth. It's yeah. ninety, ninety, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, depending on where you do it. And I don't think that that's not necessarily doctor's fault, but I don't think people have like the strongest mental association with them, where they see them and they go, "Oh, I have to like, I need to listen to that guy." It's not like how we used to view family doctors, and it's not just that. It's I think we also. There's an erosion in trust in uh, pharmaceutical companies, in public officials, as you said. But, I mean, I just – I do not know how to undo it. Mm -hmm. How do do you put the toothpaste back in the tube? Maybe you don't. That's the really unfortunate thing. You know, that's a great question. Um, So, like I said, in in prison, you can catch up on your reading. And I read a lot of history books. And I I feel like now – I get a, I have a longer view on things than I did before. Yeah. So that, you know, in, I look at it more, not so much as what's going to happen tomorrow or the next year, but, you know, maybe approaching one generation to the next, I see things more generationally. Yeah. Like your generation, for example, and my daughter's generations, because my one's a millennium and the other one's a a Gen Z. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then I look at history and how things unfold. I feel like, and I, I, I hope this doesn't happen where it's cataclysmic, but I feel like history tells us for this to get corrected, what you're saying, it's going to require some sort of cataclysmic situation Yeah, where the slate's almost cleaned and then we start over. Yeah. And I'm not advocating anything like that, nor am I advocating revolution or anything like that. One of the good thing, great things about how imperfect things have been over the last several generations as imperfect as it's been, it hasn't been nearly as bad as it was, let's say, in my mother's generation. They were fighting the Second World War. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. We've had, knock on wood, relative world peace with the aftermath of the Second World War. That First World War led to the Second World War because they didn't handle it right yeah. in 1919 at the peace treaties meetings in Paris, the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah. They fucked it up because yeah. there was a draconian punitive piece on Germany. One of the worst decisions ever yeah. made. Yeah, led to, led to Hitler. Yeah. Okay, I wouldn't have been, had they done it the right way, had they not punished yeah. Germany the way they did. Yeah. Anyway, they learned their lessons. FDR's dream of a, and Wilson's dream of a League of Nations. I know the conservative Republicans don't like the United Nations. Say what you will about the imperfections of it. But that has to have something to do with the fact that we've avoided a third world war. Yeah. And we went through the Cold War and we got through all of that and we came on the better, on the better side of the, the Cold War. Knock on wood, we've been able to avoid those big cataclysmic things. Let's hope we don't have anything like that. Maybe this is what it is, this pandemic that we've gone through. I was, you know, in some in some ways, like in early March, when none of us really knew what it was. I mean, 
God, when people were fucking, <laughs> people were wiping down their groceries with Clorox because we didn't know, like, yeah. it wasn't really surfaces. I remember I did that once, and then I was like, you know what? I'm never doing this again. Like, if, like, if the difference between life and death is, like, wiping, like, I have to take, a like, a box of seltzers and, like, wipe Clorox on it, I'll fucking die. I don't ever want to do that again. But, like, thank God I was right. It's, like, you really don't have to do that. But back then, I remember I was, like, I was doing a show. It was, uh, I forget whose show it was. It was something that was live. But I was saying that, like, you know, silver lining, you try to look for the silver lining. I hope that there is some sense in this country that, like, everyone across every every type of demographic barrier feels like we are in it together in something. And I think for some people, they have felt that. But Mm -hmm. again, like this is like with everything else, you would have to redo the last 40 years to make it so that everyone felt that. Yeah. And we've, I feel like we've been on this path where everything is consumer choice and that's, you know, you, you as an individual sort of give up a lot of your, your idea of yourself as a political entity or even a member of a community or you, you, yeah, your media consumption habits or your just actual medical consumption habits determine what type of person you are. And you have very low trust in any institution. And, you know, even even people who followed all the rules. You know, I followed every rule last, you know, this time. Like, I, I wear a fucking mask when I go on a plane. Right. Like, I think if, you know, if you're going to have masks, that's probably the best place to mandate them. It's a plane, yeah. a disease tube. But, like... Right. You know, even then, there's a very low degree of trust. And unfortunately, this is not, I don't really think it, it, just as far as American society really made anyone feel closer together in any way. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I want to be careful what I'm about to say because I don't want to give the wrong impression and I, I don't want to offend anybody. But I feel like I can just tell you from my own experience and the journey I've been on. And I, I, I one of the disappointments I've, I have since coming home is I, I was really hopeful that when I returned home, I'd be able to like help direct my young daughters to get a better, and my wife too, to get a better sense of faith. Yeah. God. Yeah. That, that I have, that I've been blessed to have because I believe I'm blessed this way, very lucky. It gave me everything I needed and, and even now it's, it's all good. But something you have to work at like anything else. But I'm really afraid to get too involved in, in the religious discussion just because people, understandably, they don't trust someone talking like that, largely because it's their platitudes. They sound like it's a good thing to do. It's yeah. to get political capital by saying it. And the other part of it is, frankly, the bigger part of it is, too many people who say that and claim that, they don't live it. They're yeah. fakes. Another example of trust, right? Yeah. They're not what they say they are. In prison, there was a name for guys like that. They call them jailhouse Jesuses, right? Yeah. They wear their, you know, big Christianity on their sleeves, and yet they're stealing all the time. You yeah. see it all the time, right? They're not living by the golden rule or even the Ten Commandments, right? Yeah. So it's awfully hard to even trust our religious institutions and, and, and men and women who are in the spiritual world. But I would say that I do believe that those lessons, those great moral lessons that you can get from scriptures from the old testament the new testament i'm sure the quran i don't know the quran but Mm -hmm. and other religious texts those moral lessons those values that are always right i believe they come from god other people might differ but a a re 
awakening of some of that, however you want to call it, by not necessarily putting it in any particular religion, but some of those good, decent values, you know, like the golden rule, do unto others you'd have others do unto you. If more and more people put more of an emphasis on this sort of thing, and I think leaders can help by being leading by example and trying to be the best they can living that way. We're never going to make it perfect. That's a given because yeah. this is a fallen world and yeah. filled with imperfection. I believe there's a heaven. Hopefully I'm right and we'll have to wait for that, but we can make it better. And I don't know. You just got to, I guess, pick your places. I, I, these are really broad, difficult questions, but I do think that so much would get better in America today at every level of our society if people were more honest when, uh, with, uh, with each other. Yeah, yeah. And the irony is here you got a convicted felon like me saying that. You know what I'm saying? And yet I truly believe it. And, and you know, I, I haven't lied to you at all about my circumstances. I truly mm-hmm. believe that I followed every single law that I was supposed to follow and broke none. But I do believe that it's the breakdown of trust and the concentration of power without the necessary checks and balances those are the biggest challenges that we face as Americans. And I think it's a challenge on a global level. Yeah. Even in, in issues like the Middle East and the differences that, that are there. A lot of it has to do with whether you can trust somebody, whether you know the Israelis can live in peace with the Palestinians and vice versa. And I, and I don't know how you legislate that. I don't think you can. I think you have to just, just has to happen organically and leaders have to lead by example. Well, I mean, it's been amazing talking to you. Uh, where can people find you? We can we can put everything in the description of this episode. I just got on Twitter, by the way. I, think I know, yeah, we follow. I just each other. started that. Yeah. yeah, it's all new to me. Um, <laughs> but because uh, there's some like Twitters with my name on it, that's not me. Oh yeah, no, I yeah. saw that. I followed a few of the like when you got out. I was like looking for you. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I was I was looking for you, and I got duped one or two times. Oh no, kidding. Even like leading up to today, I was like, holy shit! I hope I didn't get fooled by someone. I hope, I hope our show didn't rent a fucking studio and I'm getting fooled by someone. Oh, no kidding. Did you feel <laughs> When you called feels? me, I was like, oh, thank God. Because in the back of my mind, I was like, I had, I 90% believed it was you yeah. when, when we were DMing. Because I was like, that sounds like him. But, you know, you you have to have some like allowance for people fucking with you. Interesting. In some way, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't be that mad at it because it's like, yeah, that happens. That's life. It goes <laughs> like, to trust again, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did trust it was more trusted it was you than not. Yeah. Well, it was a real pleasure meeting you, and Great congratulations you. on the things that you do and the work that you do in your podcast. Thank you, thank you so much, Robert, for your time, and I'm I'm really glad you're out and that you're you're telling the story. Thanks, Phyllis. God bless you, buddy. You too. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>